Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to the episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. David, what does M-O-O-N spell? Moon. And Billy, what does M-O-O-N spell? Laws, yes, that spells Nevada. (laughs) Yes, welcome to a very awesome first time thing happening at Really True Fiction. We have a guest. For the first time ever. Hello. Welcome. My name is Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. And who is you, mystery person? My name is Billy Schultz. I'm a guest. <laughs> Woo! It has been far too long, I think, for this podcast to finally have a guest. And we've pulled the trigger. So <laughs> you are our first guest. An yeah, honorary yeah. position. Well, all you to... had to do was ask your friend who also hosts a podcast <laughs> yes, with you. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's not the most dangerous form of guinea pigism I've ever come across, but it's also not the most tame. Thank no. you very much. So well, it's pretty tame. if you notice any excitement in our voices, I promise you, dear listener, it's not for you. It's for each other. <laughs> so thank you. For Although we are very excited that you're listening to this. Oh, yeah, grateful. that's what I meant. <laughs> If this isn't a guinea pig thing, what did you make me drink when I got here? <laughs> Ooh. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll leave that in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a few reasons why we have Billy as a guest and our first guest. Part of them is source material for today's episode. Part of it is that I feel very fortunate to be working on another podcast with Billy, which is part of the connection. So, uh, Billy, why don't you tell us a little bit about your other podcast? Sure. I Yeah, I do a podcast with Luke and our good friend Alex called Nothing to Fear. It's a weekly deep dive into a horror movie. We talk about the horror movie, what we know about it. We pick it apart. We make a lot of fun of it. And uh, it came about because I was always too afraid to watch horror movies. And this was a really great way to you know, get over that fear and prove that they're just movies and there's nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> Which is as, an someone title. as someone who's personally afraid of horror movies, I might have to engage in this somewhat. Or it seems like a good idea. Well, it's never too early into a podcast episode for a complete digression, so allow me. Uh, I would say, actually, and I mean, this is a psychological fact, so I think it, it can belong in really true fiction. Um, I've noticed that I find these the horror movies that we watch together much less scary when you are going to be talking about them in a kind of review frame of mind. So we're watching them, the three of us watch them together, and then we talk about them. And even though, like, maybe in a moment there's a jump, I feel way... I don't know how you feel, Billy. Maybe you can speak to this. I feel way less afraid than I would have if I was watching it by myself and then didn't talk about it. Yeah, I think there's something very therapeutic in the talking about something that was scary. Because I've been scared in some of the movies, but as soon as we talk about it, we get it all out, I can go home and I 
have had zero trouble sleeping as a result of watching a, a scary movie just because of the therapeutic way of talking about it and poking holes and being like, was that scary? Yeah, it was kind of scary, but we got through it. And this is, it was just, uh, it's just been really, really fun to explore that side. So fun. Yeah. 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 Oh, well. And we haven't even mentioned uh, what we're talking about yet. Yeah. I know. Just before we do, if people are interested in listening to Nothing to Fear, Billy, where can they find it? Sure, you can find us anywhere you find podcasts. If you downloaded this one, whatever platform you used, you can search for Nothing to Fear. And we we release Mondays at 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. So that's when the episodes go out. And you can check us out on Instagram as well at Nothing to Fear Podcast. Mm-hmm. And if you like it, you can give it a rating or a review as that helps it moves up the charts. Oh, yeah. As I've learned. And and if you write a review, it helps it move up the charts even more, apparently. So. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. yeah. Like significantly, significantly more than ratings? Just rating, yeah. yeah so I if guess you rate and review. So ah. Highly recommend doing both. Ah. Yeah, do it. And do it for this one. There yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, otherwise I'm going to have to stop making accounts and then reviewing... <laughs> it is exhausting but then, but then like hiding it from david by giving really bad reviews every third one is a one-star yeah, review exactly. just to like that's where all the one stars yeah i wish from. they would get to the point <laughs> uh yeah and it's just been fun like as a uh, like we've done insidious we've done poltergeist we've done carrie uh, flag that one there for a second for a little bit later here. What? We've done The Exorcist. Just a lot of movies I haven't seen, some I haven't. It's been a blast to so fun. look at horror movies. And uh, in October, there'll be uh, the whole swath of the Halloween movies coming out, Yeah, which is awesome. And so I just feel like it's been a real big joy to be doing this Nothing to Fear. And so that's a perfect segue into why Billy is a guest today, which I'll let David, introduce us. So uh, we're going to be doing, I think, a very topical book, which is The Stand by Stephen King. Uh, I first read it two years ago and would have never expected to be living in a world that slightly paralleled this, although (laughs) on a very minor level, uh, this book. And I think the crossover with Nothing to Fear of a genre that is obviously horror, which is Stephen King's kind of specialty. Yeah, have we done any horror? I don't think we've done any horror. So it seems like a perfect opportunity to get a crossover of the other Luke and Billy's other podcast and then also uh, I think this is one of my favorite Stephen King books so it's just a perfect have either of you read many other ones I haven't but just before it, there's a third person on nothing to fear it's, it's Alex he's our good friend too I want to shout right out sorry him. yes Alex as well yes he's not here but he's here with us in he's spirit. not here he's here he's here on ours um, he, uh, he hurt his elbow <laughs> That's a cheap shot to a friend, so uh, we'll let it slide. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, yeah, I haven't actually read too much Stephen King. I haven't seen too many Stephen King movies. Again, self-professed, very scaredy cat of horror movies. I remember I did read the novelization of The Shining when I was in high school, and that was good. But this is probably my first big one. I know The Stand and It are some of his like real big volumes, and, and this one... This one was a this was a beast to get through. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a long book, although a pleasure to read the whole way through. You, I, yeah, it's not a hard read. I didn't find it much of a slog. Just very, very long. Took me a long time. I think it took me about a couple of weeks to read this one. Well, and I would, I mean, this. I, I think I haven't read any other Stephen King novels, but I've ingested in the last five years a lot of his adaptations to television. So I've watched a lot, of, like The Castle Rock, The Outsider was a great show that was on earlier this year obviously we've seen it i don't know if you've seen it i've not seen it mostly because i also no but stay tuned for november oh Oh, right right right. (laughs) although oh no well okay technically we did stand by me yeah uh, which is yes which which is is a stephen Stephen king King based 
movie on a novella that he wrote. Yes. So anyway, that's all to say that, um, yeah, The Stand, the version we have uh, that David and I read, and this will be an interesting thing to com- contrast and compare along the way, is that uh, we have the complete and uncut edition, which is a re-release in 1990. Yeah, because the original 78. book it was published in 78 was much shorter, I think about 400 pages shorter. Okay, yeah, that um, makes sense. Because I guess the editor didn't feel that uh, they should have quite as much material. I, I haven't read the abridged version or the original, I suppose, but from what I've heard about it, uh, it's just a lot less gripping uh, on a lot of the individual personal details uh, and some of the stories in the beginning, which I think is one of my favorite parts where where he's just explaining in clinical fashion just how people die. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Absolutely. And what was fascinating, I just, you know, I, I, okay, look, I know I'm committed to basically no research. And as uh, <laughs> uh, David's friend Tom pointed out in our animal farm, yeah. it shows. <laughs> <laughs> However... I did so. I did do a, a, a very brief Wikipedia browse for the stand, and when it was written and published in 1978, the world was actually set in 1980. So the original oh. setting is 10 years prior, and then the 1990 re-release, everything is updated to 1990. So that's why all the cultural references are applicable to the 80s in oh. in the version we read. And I think maybe good opportunity, Billy, like with the audiobook, mm-hmm. it's the same, right? Like you yes. got but in audio. So what was that like? That was different because, yeah, I I listened to the uncut, the complete edition, and they had an introduction talking about how they took it, they took a bunch of stuff out for the original, and Stephen King was always a little bit bummed about that. So he put it back in and updated it for the times and, you know, cleaned up some of the progression of the timeline. And it was like, yeah, this was really long to listen to. I think Audible clocked it at 47 hours. Yeah. That's long. So it probably took me longer to read it, though. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I didn't listen to that in. And you didn't listen to that straight, straight through. Yeah. You know, I would I would listen to it while I was on a run or while I was biking, and it's just it was a really easy way to get immersed in the world mm. and just sort of let the narrator carry you away. Like I think everybody likes having stuff read to them, and that's why audiobooks are super popular yeah. now because you can yeah. do them anywhere. You can't. You know, Stephen King, it is a novel, but it is not a paperback, like, front pocket of your, you know, jacket <laughs> no, novel. Like, no. This thing is almost as thick as it is, like, Is that wide. a Stephen King novel, or are you just happy to see it? <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah, so just, I think just having, you know, the technology to listen to stuff is really cool. Mm. It was really visceral. There's no way to gloss over any of this more squeamish parts when uh, someone's reading it too so every word hits you hard true i didn't think of that that's a very mm-hmm. good point well and there's a couple instances in the book of the n-word which the I'm, n-word and the r-word right yeah right. and they're both read out so i imagine that like is a little bit jarring it is and i was actually gonna wait we'll look for a way to bring that up but wait thank you for the segue <laughs> lock in the door please thank you yes oh the door's wide open but yeah because i think even when you read it and when you see it you can you can sort of get a four sense that the word is coming and you can gloss over it and you don't, you can choose not to internally be like, okay, I know, I know that's what that word is and I'm not going to say it. But when someone's reading it to you and you don't like have the script coming, it's just like, it'll hit you out of nowhere. You're like, oh, right. They call Tom Cullen the R word so many times. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I. <laughs> 1978 slash 1990. Yeah. 1978 slash 1990. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think he probably, I mean, I don't believe that Stephen King himself 
it would be racist. My my idea behind this is he's I think he he gets into people's heads so much and he's kind mm-hmm. of engaging with a way of thinking because what he's doing like what i love about stephen king is he he builds these backgrounds of characters so Mm -hmm. that when so that we understand their fears we understand what drives them we understand what makes them what they are and it's funny because we've talked about this in uh previous episodes uh like um with huckleberry finn Mm -hmm. right where Mm -hmm. or again we're engaging with language that we obviously wouldn't use but it's it's interesting how language has changed and it's also it's context building yeah that's what yeah, i absolutely so it, I, I don't know what if it's necessary i was thinking about this on on the drive down because uh, i was up visiting my parents and i was like is it necessary to put is it necessary for him to put that in there like why is he doing it because i don't think you would see that anymore no i think uh, if you wanted to have someone be like a jerk or a mean character he would just say it in different ways yeah you wouldn't, right? wouldn't be using wouldn't be using such inflammatory language and and you never have it being it's not casual to the point of like you know say a tarantino movie where that is everywhere yeah uh, by yeah. everyone they're just like oh this kid why don't you say it like yeah. no okay Every, everyone can <laughs> all right it. yeah. it's just your turn <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh, you know i think he picks picks characters who would say it and they're bad people so it's like okay well this bad person is going to say it, but it's still an interesting choice for him. Well, for if even gonna, in 1990. Yeah, if we're going to give it a higher order interpretation, it's, I think, along what you were saying, both of you, with Stephen King loves, like, I would submit the general swath of his characters are of like the rough cohort of people in the world. Yes. Right? Like we're yes. talking about maybe the people, like for lack of a better term, the intense working class seem to be <laughs> the general makeup of a lot of his characters, maybe not all of his protagonists, but certainly the people around and certainly in this book. Mm -hmm. Right. And one of the things that I think he, and I think it's to his credit artistically, is he doesn't shy away from those inflammatory things because he's doing it. I think to build contexts of where these people are coming from. Yes. Yeah. What you both are saying. And you notice it in a lot of his work. We can talk about this maybe more at the end, but I actually really appreciate, and we've talked about this when we did Carrie on Nothing to Fear and this uh, Stand By Me. What I love about Stephen King is that like, he writes supernatural horror, but I would, su- again, submit the most horrific things that he writes about are humans. Yes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like his yeah. actual villains are people. the people. So obviously in the stand we have Randall Flagg who is the supernatural villain but if you read about the soldiers and that uh Lloyd's friend Poker, Poke Pokey Andrew Poke Freeman yeah at the beginning like basically psychopaths <laughs> are Poke all, Poke <laughs> all over psychopathic bullies yeah are Stephen King's bread and butter. <laughs> and he all, but he has a spectrum. I like that he, he also has like Larry who starts off as this very mm-hmm. unfortunate character who like an unlikable he's, and unlikable. Like, nobody really wants to spend time around a guy like Larry. Like he's sleeping with women and then they're like, Oh, you're not a good person. And he's like, Oh, maybe I think I'm kind of a good person. <laughs> like I have a pretty high opinion of myself. Like <laughs> right. um I think Who the fuck are you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> who are you to tell me who I am? Right? But but at the end of the at the end of the book, we see that development. So we get we get the whole spectrum, and then we get uh, then we get Mother Abigail, who's like this saintly person, right? And so we yeah. we actually do get the whole spectrum of kind of character, mm. an individual character to deal with in this book. That might be one of the reasons this is, I think, a standout of his. <laughs> the standout, <laughs> yeah, the standout. <laughs> like there is a there is a very full spectrum of characters in this book, 
and again, not an expert on Stephen King, but even in the movies, there doesn't there isn't this wide of a swath of an ensemble of character types in a lot of his other stories. Yeah, there are, there are some, but I think The Stand manages to be the most thorough in that point. And that was really interesting listening to it because. I didn't know anything about the stand. And so when it started, I was like, okay, we're introduced to this campion fellow. Okay. This is our protagonist. Here we go. Okay. We've got his wife. We've got his kid. Here we go. And then it cuts to the gas station in Texas. And it's like, and here's the person you just saw, but now he's dead. And you're like, okay, <laughs> cool. Yeah. So we're not following him. Yeah. And then you like, you get the names of all these other people and you're like, I don't know. And he just kind of mixes it and in. Sometimes he kills them and sometimes he doesn't. Where, yeah, everyone's know. in there and you're just like, okay, so maybe this stew person is important. I don't know. I don't, who's, who's Franny? What? I don't. And then it's just like, eventually as everything else falls away, you're left with the core of people. Like when, for example, when Larry Underwood's introduced, I was like, okay, this is another campion. Like we can forget about him. Oops. Oh no. He goes all the way through. <laughs> so like campion is the Ned Stark. Of the stand. Exactly. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> right? I hope oh. he's played by Sean Bean. <laughs> uh, oh, <yeah>. Sean Bon? <laughs> I think the other thing I wanted to mention about mm. the audible version, the listening to it version, is again, the language is so visceral. There's a scene that really stuck with me, and we'll talk about the characters a little bit later, but when we are introduced to Nick and he's hitchhiking and he gets beaten up, like he gets jumped by the road. And Stephen King writes a passage about how Nick could taste the flecks of teeth on his tongue. And it was just like the way he, you, when you read yeah. it, you, you can gloss over that. But when like, for some reason, hearing those words in my ear is just like, well, that's with me forever. Yeah, that, just that is like, a, It is a brutal scene. Yeah, it's like, such a brutal scene. And I think that like listening again, there was times when I tuned out cause I was riding my bike or thinking about other stuff, but it, def- it definitely brought me back way more just hearing hearing the words. Oh. Yeah, that, and that's so interesting because I have been internally just myself in my own life struggling between, okay, do I start writing or do I just keep podcasting more? Like which output am I more attracted to? Hmm. And I'm finding myself more and more like, no, I'm just going to start more podcasts. Like I'm just <laughs> like I have these things that I think I could write about and like, okay, I'll, I'll work on a book, let's say. But then I'm like, but... There's just something I appreciate more about voices and talking. And I listen to tons of podcasts and I still love reading, but I'm that visceral nature of it that struck me as interesting. It's more intimate. Mm. You know, reading is, is very, you know, it's not isolating, but like you get there and you're, you're in your world and you get into your, your little private world and you're just reading a book, you're consuming it. If somebody is podcasting or you know, reading a book, it, you're inviting them into your ears and it feels like a very much more intimate mm. scenario where, you know, a lot of times people who listen to a lot of podcasts are like, I feel like I'm friends with these people I've never met or like I'm eavesdropping on just people having a conversation and it's just super chill and relaxing. Right. And that I think is something that the written word can't necessarily give you. I know a lot of people get a lot of friends from books and it's great. Mm-hmm. They can transport you to magical worlds and a lot of books do a really good job of that, but there's just something about hearing it and being yeah. in that setting. That's interesting. Cause I think Joe Rogan talks a lot about how the podcasting world has transformed audience size. No, no, it's not. It's Jordan Peterson who says right. this. He talks about how we've only been reading for like 10,000 years or something, or not even like with a written yeah, word right. has not existed for the majority of humanity for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so the audio 
the audio senses, the auditory senses are are way more how we communicate. Like, yeah, the, the oral is, and the... This, yeah, this is how we have relationships. And so I agree with you. It's, it is more intimate in a lot of ways and I think more accessible. And storytelling. There's a lot more people yeah. who are willing to listen to something, I think, than to read it. It's like mm-hmm. a weird retroactive technology yeah to be having it's like the, going the oral backwards. tradition yeah be yeah, the yeah, new yeah <laughs> kind of manifest one with that's that's what podcasting. i'm saying yeah, yeah like so that's i think great. that's pretty cool and i do think it's more accessible well, clearly clearly we have a different emotional and psychological reaction to voices than we do to text yes <laughs> like that. no i, I don't want to i don't want to in any way demean text no like, no personally no. but i but i like what you were saying billy i agree one of the things that I've in, when I engage with a book, it's it's a much more individualistic experience. Mm-hmm. But when I listen to a book, it seems like it's more of a communal experience. Mm. But you, but but maybe with the audible in your headphone. But like it's different because when you're listening, like I don't. David and I had our moms read to us a lot for yeah. homeschool, and it that was, was a with my yeah. sisters and and with your siblings. I imagine it's a community event. Like we'd even get the rabbits and the cats. And <laughs> <laughs> the whole family it's would come to listen to books. And uh, my version of that intimacy, Billy, would be the podcasts. Like yeah. I yeah. in my car or in my headphones. I listen probably, but it's like two a conversation a more. I would say, like you, you feel like you're convert. You're not conversing, but you feel like you're, like you said, you feel like you know the person. I feel mm-hmm. like I. I know- don't feel like I know the authors that I read. Maybe no, no, no. Although, if I know, if I have listened to them enough, I read the book in their voice. Oh, so it's impossible for me to read like a Sam Harris book without hearing his voice talk about it, or uh, like any author who I really know what their voice sounds like. So if I had listened to a lot of Stephen King interviews. I probably would have read The Stand with his mm, voice right, in my head, right. but I don't. Do the two of you do that with um, with texts? Like, I have friends that if they text me, I will, because I talk to them on the phone so oh, much, yeah, yeah. I will read it literally in their in their. <laughs> I can hear it in, in their voice, yeah. especially when Luke texts me. <laughs> it's usually a joke. <laughs> yeah, 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 that would make sense. And then I'm like, I bet you Luke is laughing right now. <laughs> I would say I can't really in text because they're not long enough, but I do read them in what I know of the person. Right. So I read like a kind of more abstract sense into what's going gone you know, into the, the deeper text. context <laughs> yes <laughs> i exactly. think like that's important like hearing the author's voice or or you said like hearing the voice is really important especially when you have a mental image from reading a book and if you watch a movie you know how like maybe you imagined frodo look differently and now sure, you yeah. watch lord of the rings and it's like well that's elijah that's, Wood. That's, frodo. That's, frodo, yeah. that's how he is oh i totally feel that way about harry potter <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, that's a great little foray. <laughs> well, um, Should we talk about the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll do a, we'll do a quick synopsis of the plot. But uh, I just want to first of all say big thank you to Billy for agreeing to join us on the podcast. We uh, obviously David and I have talked a little bit on here, but a lot off air to each other about how how we want to grow and and i think guests are a great way to do that and um, i just feel really lucky that it's someone who's such a good friend of mine to be the first guest but also like not just a charity case <laughs> i guess like <laughs> well that makes you feel great <laughs> well, no, but just well, like how you're not a charity how, how, case, right? how much like how much fun and insight there's been in all of these other horror movies that we've done have really been like, oh my gosh. Well, I already knew we'd have good repartee in podcast form. So anyway, I'm just grateful for that. And I'm also super grateful to all of the wonderful listeners out there in listener land. I hope that all of you get like one-tenth of the value out of the podcast that David and I get into creating them. It's such a joy. You can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. 
You can find us on Facebook. We have a page and we're on all the major uh, podcast apps. Uh, If you listen to us on iTunes, a five-star rating and a review. uh, The review really helps apparently. So (laughs) if you feel so inclined, um, we would really appreciate that. And as the the great philosophical band from the early 2000s debut album, Take Back Sundays, tell all your friends. <laughs> I, I know that was, a, that was one of the most looped statements. That I've, was the longest walk I've ever seen a person go on. <laughs> you know what? I'm not scared to take a short walk off a long plank. And I don't care who knows. <laughs> if you do like really true fiction, we'd really appreciate any support. More than anything, if you have a request or you want to be a guest, send us an email. We'd really love to know. We love engagement with people and we love talking about stories. So, the stand. Do either one of you want to give the synopsis or the plot rundown? Not it. No. Okay, I'll do it. (laughs) Fine, Luke, you do it. (laughs) You can do it, Luke. So the version we read anyway, set in, I think it begins in, is it April of 1990 or March? Something like that. June, isn't it? June? Okay, June. See? Good thing you're here. (laughs) It's good to have Billy here. First first (laughs) sentence in. Nope, that was actually... uh, June 1990, and all of us would have been born, So, but David just barely. (laughs) Actually, I think we have a home video from 1990 when you're just little and I'm three and your mom is terrified that I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Well, I mean. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I was not a responsible three-year-old. I'll be the first to admit it. Anyway, the U.S. government through a uh, military branch accidentally leak. Well, there's an accidental leak of this particular influenza that they're curating to or culturing to breed. Do we know why they were doing it? Was it just a test? I, I think can't. It was remember. just like chemical warfare. Yeah, wasn't basically it? just mm. developing bio okay. bio warfare. It gets bio, out. Bio yeah, it gets out, spreads to the public, and it has like a 99% fatal or mortality rate. So 99.4. 99.4. So a little worse than COVID. <laughs> I have to <laughs> tiny bit. I have to say this was maybe a, if you flip it around. <laughs> today when I was driving home from work, I was behind a car that had COVID nineteen on the back windshield and then 84 beside the 19 so it was covid 1984 i was like oh god oh my goodness (laughs) that's yeah that's a foreshadowing of a future episode Uh, there we go i like that we're gonna read about covid 19 no (laughs) uh so anyway a lot of the first third of this book is us kind of getting introduced to the main characters who all survive but also learning a lot of the perspectives like you mentioned billy of all of the people who don't and like the gruesome ways they go, uh, it's really, really awful. I think my favorite part of that section mm. is how he doesn't just describe how people die from the disease; he describes how people die afterwards because of the impact of not just oh not having gosh. people around. Yep. yep. Like there's just one line that just sticks in my mind: the one guy who just fell down a well, mm-hmm. or the one girl who just like <laughs> like she she'd survived the pandemic yeah. and yeah. then she was walking over somewhere well, like, and just fell through. Just fell Things through, if yeah. they wanted to survive it, they could have, but they just kind of quit. Now that too, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, yeah. yeah. So yeah, we, we like we'll talk about that more when we get to like the mental health, of course, <laughs> aspect yes. of of COVID nineteen slash this because I think that's the best parallel in the book to to that version of what we're going through right now, with all of these deaths and just and and the kind of weirdly not like it's. I'm glad it was more. I, of course, it'd be more visceral audibly because one of the notes I made is like Stephen King writes horrible things in kind of just nonchalant manner. <laughs> like the way clinical he's, yep, observation, yeah, clinical and like kind of like I had I had a bologna sandwich for lunch, I drank orange juice, 
this person put a bar through their throat and then we walked the dog. You know, like <laughs> just like that kind of tonal uh, yeah. way is yeah. so Stephen King that I was impressed by it. But obviously it's like the mundanity of like gruesome things <laughs> yeah. almost in like, this world. He just, so he just treats the like the what we would, I guess, consider traumatic as the regular. Yeah. And so as the narrative unfolds, we're kind of following three groups, the kind of Stu Redman, Franny Goldsmith Harold group, Harold Laudner group, and then the Larry Underwood, Reader Blakemore, who passes away, and then Larry and Nadine group, and the Nick Tom group, and whoever else was with them. And Glenn. Glenn was with Glenn is with Stu. Stu, and then they collect Ralph along the way somehow. Right, 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 right. And so then they are all coalescing to go to Boulder, Colorado, because they've all had this like kind of ethereal dream. That they've been talking Almost about. Almost like their, a vision, I yeah. would say, more than a... Like it's, but it's when they're sleeping. It's when they're sleeping, yeah. But they're all having it, and they're all talking about it. It's like, well, there's Mother Abigail lady. She's calling to us from Boulder, Colorado. We need to go there. Or, yeah, but first, she wasn't First calling. it's Nebraska, yeah. and then... Oh, right, Because right. Nick and a couple other people meet her at Nebraska, and then she's like, well, let's go to Boulder. And they're like, okay, I guess yeah. <laughs> there's nothing yeah. else to do. Well, yeah. braver Kansas was taken, so sure. <laughs> they had to go somewhere. <laughs> and so they, they go to Boulder, and all the in the meantime... There's this like anti Mother Abigail character, Randall Flagg, who's the, uh, I think referred to as the Shadow Man or the Dark Man. The dark Man, the Walking Dude, right? Who is the bad guy? Who is also kind of creating his own community in Las Vegas? Although I guess they don't know it's Las Vegas, do they? Until later. I do we know it's Las Vegas? Well, we don't know that's where he's going, right? But they are headed in that direction. Yeah, and, then and it like seems that there's a certain co- group. Uh, so people who have a disposition to darkness let's call it are having visions from him but interestingly enough some people are having visions from both of them in fact it sounds like most of them are having visions from both so it's not just mother abigail Mm. we're getting dualistic visions sort of right and it's almost like this which side are you gonna pick Mm -hmm. like very i mean it's it's almost like nail on the head kind of thing but i like it because because stephen king does it so well it's a very good versus evil yeah, thing. Yes, Where exactly. Like, this is light versus darkness, good yeah. versus evil, yeah. God versus Satan. Like it's all. But but interestingly, weaved into a story that otherwise has very kind of common sense characters in it. Well, I think maybe that's <laughs> right. It. I think so, maybe that's his point. I guess mm-hmm. we can probably get to this later. But is that he's saying common life can be this battle right. between these two things. And uh, so this book is so huge, so I'm not going to get into too many details, but basically the last third of the book, we get a lot more of like the Randall Flagg, Las Vegas perspective of the world. And our heroes in the free zone send some spies over to kind of figure out what's going on in the in the dark zone or whatever they call it. And then four of our main characters also get told to go there by Mother Abigail, who's left the community and then came back and then died. But just before she dies, she says, well, the four of you need to go. Sorry, don't take anything. Okay. Okay, bye. Uh, just, just go there. Yeah. Not all of you will make it. Uh, okay. <laughs> and so then uh, I think it's Glenn, Ralph, Larry, and Stu make their way. Uh, and Kojak. Oh, and Kojak yes. the dog. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry. My mistake. He's, he's a very important yeah. role he's that he plays. Very important character. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. Very, actually. <laughs> also, I like that his pre-pandemic name was Big Steve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> made me laugh so much. Yeah. That reminds me of a joke I can tell sometime. <laughs> they go through a series of events that I don't totally want to spoil because it's fun to read. Although I guess we have to talk about it later. There's a nuke that goes off 
in the Dark Zone by Trash Can Man, who's its other character has been around. And that's kind so of a lot of names you're just flinging around. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> that's kind of how the Dark Zone community is defeated. But we learned at the end of the end of the book, Randall Flagg isn't dead because he's this like immortal embodiment of evil and yeah. mischief almost. And he and, seems to be a devil like character. Yeah, yeah, but he's like. He's like an unaware devil. He's mm-hmm. like not cognizant of the fact that he is all powerful to that degree. Or... He, he, and he just seems to have like less grandiose or noble aspirations of a devil. Like at yeah. least Lucifer wants to beat God and rule the world. Right. Randall just, seems fine with he's just kind like, of chaos and destruction. And yeah. Evil. He's now, more of course, like a I, Loki. I want to point out. Yeah. I want to point out that like, like a more evil Loki. All of yeah. Stephen King's novels are all a part of one story, which is the Dark Tower. Oh really? Yeah. So there is like a shared web. So there, there is a yeah. shared theme that builds over the course. So of... So is flag in the Dark Tower yes. books? Oh okay. And he, but so that so there's also in the Dark Tower. It's not like the whole thing is the Dark Tower. His whole universe. Oh okay. But there's different realms and oh, there's I different see. like it's it's it, it becomes very complex. It is also in the right Dark right so right it's right. Just um, it is a manifestation of something mm. from another realm, and it becomes very complex. But that's unimportant, I think, to what we're trying to do. Here, <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I, I just, just... want to point out that we do know that. I like, found Flag uh, to be like a kind of less admirable demon. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, like he a... just seemed like he was more interested in fucking with the people around him. Yeah, he's but, just he's there to stir up some shit. He's, mm-hmm. he's kind of, and he's also very saddest, right? Like, he, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He he, he, he gets off to, on he gets the off brutality, on, on, on hurting others, right, and mm-hmm. and causing. Not just pain, but like mm-hmm. misery. And so then, at the end of the book, are really the only main characters left alive are kind of Stu and Fran and Lucy, I guess. Yeah, Lucy's there. The, kind of, she's yeah. partnered with Larry through a lot of the book, and she's and like Leo and Tom. Yeah, yeah, it. true, true. I, uh, yeah, okay. So we have a few, but like in a book where there's you know probably about fifteen main-ish characters like only about five of them are left at the end so we lose a lot of them we do well we lose a lot all throughout the book yeah Yeah. but can i can i talk about the very start and how the first Mm -hmm. third was probably the hardest part to get through for me yeah the 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 world of the the world ending part essentially just the way the plague progresses and because i was listening to it in july and august when stuff was starting to uh, wind down a little bit, but we're worried about this like second wave uh, that that could be coming with this whole COVID thing, and the whole culture has been permeated since you know March about COVID this and every like everything panic, panic, panic. We don't know what's going and kids on. Kids going back to school now. And kids, with, and, like, oh, September twenty twenty. But just like just having like when he's describing the way Captain Trips, which is what it's sometimes called, when this super flu is spreading, that. Just like, oh, this guy went into a store and he gave it to everyone in there. And, oh, this guy, you know, pulled someone over and wrote him a ticket and also gave him the super flu. And just like how he wrote that it was spreading was just like, oh, God, like it's so easy. And there's like just like the ways they like, you know, they try to quarantine and they have signs where it's like absolutely any cold symptoms report. And there's a scene where there's this nurse who's like, yeah, I got a cough, but it's probably nothing. And just like keep going. And it's like. Oh my uh, god! It, that one that hit so funny super close to home. Because yeah. that's like that's a kind of a basically a meme now, where it's like someone will cough, be like, "It's not a COVID cough." Yeah, it's not a COVID. <laughs> it's cough. literally a meme. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's true. Hey, how yeah. it's like I, I've done. I did that yesterday. I sneezed, and I was like, "I'm good, guys." Like, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it was just a sneeze. Yeah. Like, that's not even a, a symptom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Like that's so crazy how it's just so easy to spread. 
Thankfully, right? COVID's not as easy as this seems to be, from what we can tell. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, but uh, th- I mean, this seems to be. I mean, this is a world-ending plague. Well, right? yeah. I mean, I definitely want to launch off into the 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 world that these people find themselves in. I think a good place to start is, um, I think it's page one eighty-one. The note that I made is someone made a mistake, and so I had to make the note Wuhan. <laughs> <laughs> like there is. Yeah. There is a uh, a lab in Wuhan, China, that studies coronavirus. So oh. the fact yeah. that it's there, like I, I've just listened to a lot of podcasts, and, and and I think both of you can vouch for this. I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. Like that's not. Well, really I think my, we know it came from China. Well, we know right. it came from China, but the kind of mystery is, well, was it a wet market or was it a lab leak? Yeah, kind of thing, and. and it just sounds like there's a lot of evidence to this extent that we can get it that probably this was like potentially a, an accidental lab leak hmm. in Wuhan, China, which is kind of what happens here. Well, and like right? there's only like three or four level four labs in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And one of those in Wuhan. It's like how coincidental. Well, and I mean, but but then I guess the question is, at what point is it worthwhile to like hold someone accountable versus solving the problem? Yeah, I think right now at this and is point, is this a solvable problem? Yeah, it's it's immaterial as to who caused it. We're all yeah. just we're all just dealing with it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if there's anything to that extent, it would be like, well, how long did authorities in China know before mm. they informed? That the would rest be the, the biggest world, thing that right? would bother me. They they're letting people get on planes from Wuhan to Italy, mm-hmm. and there there's just I don't know that that China handled it. They kind of like didn't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But I, it, I, I do think that's immaterial to this, though, in the sense right. that now we're dealing with it. And but I, just how one mistake. Whereas it wasn't immaterial to this book. Right. Well, I like that the mistake in this book was it was like thirty seconds. Yeah. That's right. all it took. Right. It was yeah. like it was like wait a minute the numbers are red for thirty seconds. Oh fuck like, <laughs> someone escaped remember and someone got out which is never supposed to happen yeah, right? yeah. camping the guy camping got out yeah. and it was like just, just like, ah. how quickly i guess the lesson is how quickly things can go south right oh. well like, how how when we play with these things for war mm, like which is yeah. essentially in this book when we when we study these things to be used for nefarious purposes because like otherwise why would you be developing this kind of thing right, right? yeah like they're not developing it because they want to understand disease better. They're developing it because <laughs> yeah. they want to kill people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what was the intention? Was it just to have in case they were in a war? Well, my yeah, my guess would be. I mean, if you think about this from a military standpoint, it's like, well, you want to understand what your enemy could have. Mm. You also want to understand understand these things so that maybe you can create something to deal with them, like a vaccine, right? Right. Or, or any of these things. So, like, the studying of it in a world in which, you know, it's possible that your enemies could throw something like this at you to understand these things is important yeah. would be the would be the, the, the steel man of it. Mm. I think the, the, like, the reality is it's just trying to create – it's, like, the same reason we created nukes. Mm. Yeah, I think it's just, like, an extension of the Cold War, yeah. right? Like, it's 1990 – even 1978 would have been, like, a lot more colder attention, even in 1990. Mm-hmm. It's – because when did the wall come down? That uh, was, 89, like, the year I was born. 89, okay. So, it would have still been, like, the, the very end of it. Fresh in there. And, you know, it was always a mutually assured destruction thing. It was always a, like, well, if they have it, then if we don't also have it, what's to stop them from using it on us? Mm-hmm. And exactly, so yeah. I can see it just as, like, saber rattling gone wrong and then <laughs> and they oops they knocked wrong. over a vial of super flu <laughs> so so then like do we think this is 
being things like this are being cultured right now in the labs in well, our Well, there countries. are diseases in labs that are way worse than what's than COVID. Correct. We know that. Yeah. There, there are things that could spread. Like th- this is not an like the description of in the, in the stand is a little extreme, but it's not that extreme. Hmm. Like, yeah, it's like a bad flu. You get a fever. You seem to get better, and then and then you're dead. Yeah, you're but dead. there, I know that there are like obviously diseases that have already existed that are more dangerous than COVID that we have a handle on or we already have vaccines for. But do you think that there are military programs? Yes. Trying to culture. Yes. New. There are. We know there are. There's God. Like, there's reports. That terrifies like, This me. isn't like secret. I'm super happy to be ignorant of that. Just be like, <laughs> nope. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't want to know if there's, if I'm an ant, I don't want to know there's a boot. <laughs> like, it doesn't make me feel better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy because this is kind of one of the most realistic apocalyptic scenarios. Yes. Hey? Yeah. Like, sometimes there's like, yeah. you watch Twister and you're like, eh. Bad CGI. Yeah, but they had a belt. <laughs> they could hold on to any pipes yeah. they had. <laughs> yeah, right. Like I don't know. There's just some of them that seem a little more yeah. far-fetched or at least survivable. But this cool. one's like... Yeah, this one feels like it do? could happen. I think the fact that this one also didn't result in zombies or something mm. made it more believable. Because if it was like everyone died and then zombies, yeah, like you'd be like, style. okay, yeah. yeah. But, but I'm, yeah, and I mean, especially now that we've experienced what we've experienced over, I don't know, the last six months this becomes even more, it just feels like it's right there. Mm-hmm. Like when you're reading this, you're like, oh. Like mm-hmm. The first time I read this, I was up in the Yukon on a trip. We were dr- doing a lot of driving. And there was the desolation around me, the beautiful desolation. It was just, it was a really cool place to be reading a mm. horror novel. The second time you read it, you're sitting in your, well, I'm, I was like, you're, 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 Driving around an apocalyptic, it feels like an apocalyptic wasteland. Right, everyone's yeah, yeah, wearing yeah. masks, <laughs> and like people aren't going out, <laughs> yeah. and everything's empty. And you're like, "Wow!" Ooh, like yeah. this plus is... now everything's smoky and on fire, so yeah. that helps. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know, like weirdly, reading this book actually made me feel a little bit better about COVID. Well, yeah, because <laughs> like, yeah, oh, COVID is way less terrible than this. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Like even Contagion, the movie, like yes. we watched Contagion yeah. like a like couple days on. after the yeah. lockdown, yeah. and even that one had like a like a twenty percent mortality rate, which oh, wow. is nothing compared to the stand. No, and no. it was like uh, society went to shit real fast <laughs> in that world. I can't even imagine. Well, like they lost too many people for it to go to shit right away in this world. Yeah. One really interesting thing I found, and it's not so much about a contagion, but I guess it might be, is that um, basically this whole book is written in the pre-internet world, right? And so there's mm. like. The whole 21st chapter is the government trying to hide the genesis of the flu, or does it even exist? And I just wanted to like riff on that for a second of your perspectives of like, well, what what would be different about COVID if this was in a pre-internet world, do you think? Like, how would people have handled it different or the same? Or do you think we'd have people just straight up? I mean, I, it feels like people lied anyway. Well, that's the interesting <laughs> thing is it doesn't, all this uh, available information doesn't seem to have changed anything, right? Because... Now we have so much information that we don't know what's true. <laughs> yeah, we right? have the opposite like, problem. Like there is so much information out there that you I mean we, there there are people who have all kinds of crazy claims, like that this was invented by governments to to increase control. Like five G causes yeah, coronavirus. 5G. Oh man, that was a big one for a while. Wait, it doesn't. <laughs> no, I know it doesn't. I know it doesn't. <laughs> I don't want to be no. <laughs> Take that out. <laughs> so when the vaccine comes out, Billy will refuse. Yeah. <laughs> no. On it, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, it just, I, I'm kind of sensitive to this in a few stories we've done where it's like, hmm, 
the internet is such a milestone in human interaction and culture. Like what would be different about this scenario with or without the internet? And like in the stand, it's so much like it's all through TV or radio still, right? It's all through like, okay, well, we can't, there's so much energy. Like it almost makes you cry how much energy the authorities put into pretending like there's nothing happening yeah in the stand oh, yeah. yeah and that obviously rubbed me the wrong way because it made it more people died than probably had i mean in the final analysis it didn't really matter because of how many spread people anyway died, yeah. but like potentially some people could have survived that didn't right and in real life more like if you lied like that in real life more people would die than had mm. to well and that's the interesting thing right is that there's a lot of criticism from certain sectors of people saying, oh, the government should have done this. But like if, if COVID was worse, then I think that the government, that the government was responding based on the information it had. And they responded how we would hope they would respond, not pretending it isn't happening, but saying we need to do things. Whereas in the stand, the government is acting the opposite of, let's say, how, how the global government's acted on this one, which is just nothing's happening, nothing's wrong, mm. everything's fine, don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, they waited a long time to shut everything down. And even then, they they were still like, oh, everything's fine. like this. And I guess a big difference is that in the stand, it's directly the government that's responsible for this. Yes. yes. Which in COVID, it's not, like the Canadian government isn't responsible for COVID no. exactly in the same way or is it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know like did any of like how did you feel billy about like the mm. non-forthcomingness of the government how that might be different now with an internet generation like what makes COVID worse because we have the internet <laughs> i think it's hard because like david said it's not just that you get the information it's you get every information and you get people who think that wearing a mask for more than 30 seconds will kill you versus you think that people who, you know, that like there's, there's versus all... people who are like washing the bottom of their shoes when they come home. Yeah. They're like, like I'm going to die. Like, I put my mail in a sealed bag for 48 <laughs> hours to, to kill anything. And like, there's, there's every extreme in between there and you get that all at once. And I know that the internet, the way we curate it for ourselves ends up being somewhat of an echo chamber where you, you find the voices that you like and it's like, okay, I'm getting confirmation. And the bias. algorithms don't make it hard yeah. for you to do because that. Because it's like, okay, you're, you're saying something I like, Oh, I don't like that. So I don't And so I think, you know, you, you end up segregating yourself almost with people who are like, well, all the information I'm getting is from my friends on Facebook who thinks, thinks masks are bad or 5g causes this so now i think that versus yeah well right, if i don't right, put right, my right. mail in a bag for 72 hours i'm gonna die i'm gonna die so i'm you know and so everyone it, yeah right it, 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 it it's too diffuse mm-hmm. I think. Well, well i'll float a theory that i think we got the boat the worst of both worlds for both covid and internet and then the stand and no internet yay. i think the stand world could have really benefited from having an internet yes, because right. it it with a disease that biologically destructive instant news across the globe could save lives potentially could right have. like per- imagine forget 99.4 like that's unthinkable right, in one sense right. <laughs> let's say the virus in the stand had a 15 percent mortality but you could quarantine quickly and that might save you mm. like internet information like that could save lives very easily right well this is actually an interesting point right well, is it- well and with covid i'll just yeah. i'll just Sorry. Put the other foot down on that one. Oh, no. That seems too aggressive. Uh, I will coin the other sword. I can't put it any more clearly. It. You did Coin the sword. I've never heard that one. I think I'm mixing up my semaphores yeah. here. <laughs> okay. Here we go. <laughs> uh, COVID, like I've mentioned to this, you, this before, David, COVID is just 
biologically bad enough to be sociological disastrous. Yes. Right? Like COVID is is just dangerous enough from a viral point of view to be socially disastrous. And I think we would have benefited a little bit by having less internet during COVID times and then more targeted approaches, maybe through TV and radio, of like authorities that had less incentives to get clicks or to get likes or to get particular eyeballs, right? Yeah, it's all about views yeah. and screens and yeah. so so interactions, I think, engagement. I think we would have been better in this scenario with less internet, and the stand people would have been better with more. That's internet. a that's a that's a good point. I think again, though, the the fact that the government being directly responsible for the super flu in the stand and having them like quarantine all roads out of towns with right. like yeah, military true. vehicles, yeah. that would you know that would have been something that would have exploded on internet like if you imagine somebody flying a drone shot right, over shoyo right. arkansas with like why are all the roads blocked off by military vehicles yeah, what's yeah. up with that like okay people would rebel harder and would like riot more sure. because you know as you're soon right. as you're like okay you can't leave this is a quarantine you know this actually again not to continuously <laughs> plug nothing to fear but we watched plug Rec, away we watched wreck recently and that was an apartment building that was being quarantined and we saw those people like freak the hell out trying to get out sure so, like expand that out to the size of a town and yeah. like you know you're gonna have people panicking well maybe in a world knowing. where at the stand it's not the government's fault right they'd ha- then they have less incentive to be like quarantining on the roads well if we're just making universes up what exactly. if the stand but cupcakes <laughs> yeah. like you know that's true that's true i guess my only my only point and i'll just make this as a point more generally for governments mm. is at the beginning of this, the government realized that they didn't have enough masks in Canada. So what does the head health official for Canada do? They go out and say that masks don't do anything. <laughs> right. Right? And now they're trying to we- walk that back, right? Because they do help. Well, not just Canada. Like the oh, yeah, Fauci, the Americans too, did it too. Did that in, yeah. In, That's right. Yeah. yeah. Masks and, don't work. Now they do work. Yeah. Now it's like a band it, It's like yeah. when you're giving people, like, just be honest with people. Be like, you know what? Masks work, but we don't have enough. And they need our, so our medical you, people need them. So yeah. so can you just like stay home and not interact with people as much as possible? Lying is always bad, right? Like <laughs> like it's just period. Like align yourself as closely as you can with the truth because it, when you don't, it causes problems like people not trusting you anymore. So we're given all this information, but one of the big problems is that the authorities are lying to us. Yeah. And they're straight up lying to us. Mm-hmm. And we've proven they're lying to us. In so how w- do you trust them? In though? a way that seems both nonpartisan and so condescending. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, yes. Yeah, like how, how are we as a public supposed to respond to leaders that don't seem worthy of us? Right, like well, it's, then you mistrust and you you go okay. Well, what are my friends saying, or what is yeah. what is what are the frontline workers saying? And then you know you you tend to to do that, but then people are like, well, I don't believe you know it's it's all people don't. It's just it's such a fucking mess. I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know where I was trying to go with this. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. It's it's, yeah. it's a mess. Guess, yeah, my only point there was I think in both cases we've seen governments lying, mm-hmm. and that it doesn't work out. Well, in either and, scenario, and it, it, it's just it makes uh, it makes people like us who you know want to live good lives, treat people well, be treated respectfully, and and do likewise to others, makes us feel like we have terrible leaders. <laughs> like yeah. it's just I I don't feel well represented by many people <laughs> in the world politically, and I think probably part of that is the internet and the new incentives that come for politicians yeah. to be more 
looking good on the internet as opposed to like taking maybe an unpopular or honest <laughs> the stand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I but I I agree. So we're gonna uh, two broom bike handle our way oh, into the next section. Well, no, that's a good segue, David. A segue is a stand up broom on two wheels. Uh, yes, uh, that's a that's a Alexism. That's something Alex hates that we bring up, yeah. and we do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'll probably bring it up again before the end of this episode. Uh, yes. We got we got more stand up brooms to go through. Let's segue on. <laughs> okay. um, so especially the first third of the book, the thing about the the world of the stand that was so most visceral to me was. Um, the behavior of the soldiers mm. and Jeez, yeah. all of those scenes. And I even made the note, the scene in the TV room or the, or the studio where there's like, everyone's just killing everyone. The soldiers are shooting the other soldiers who are shooting the civilian. And it's like, the note I made there is like, okay, this is the end of civilization. Yeah. <laughs> um, or the scene in the auditorium where it's all- That's what I mean. Oh, I think where they're broadcasting and the guys like yeah. drawing names out. And they're shooting. And they're yeah, shooting yeah. Sorry, yeah. that's the scene I'm talking okay, yeah, about. Yeah. And there's the uh, this one character Palmer's executed for treason by telling people about the flu. Yeah. And uh, there's the scene where like all the soldiers are in their kind of like Humvees, just gunning down the citizens who won't listen to them. I was like, or the radio where the guys like, it sounds like he's just like a, a public, you know, public radio announcer mm-hmm. just doing his like normal thing, being like, well, we're just talking about the weather and the super flu and anyway there's soldiers in here and mm. i'm just gonna keep talking right. until until they and shoot and then boom like, yeah yeah i mean it's so there's this thought experiment that i love that i've heard um sam harris talk about where it's like okay well if you're the president of the united states and you find out russia launches a nuke at you and it's on its way do you launch one back because you're already going to be destroyed and all you're doing is killing tens of millions of more people Like, do you make that decision if you know it's already on the way? And I think the soldiers are kind of in a similar position here. When the moment they know the super flu is here, do they keep shooting the civilians? Right. Right. Do they keep listening to the orders of their lieutenants? Like, my favorite part in that whole section were the soldiers who didn't listen to the one surgeon and just shot him. Right? Like, I was like, oh, they were heroes. But then they kind of died, too. But it's interesting that none of the core people who survive in the free zone seem to be military people <laughs> right like, yeah like, none, right. Of the, none of the, the named characters or the people they talk about they're never like and i was a soldier before all this like the only ones we... yeah it's, maybe stephen king has like a little bit of a thing <laughs> well yeah like it, the, the only kind of harder edged people left are like criminals yeah not soldiers yeah or like is there a police like a one yeah, at the, end, at the end, there's one guy who shows one up. One sheriff yeah. guy, yeah. So I don't know. What did you think about the soldiers? Like, the philosophy around what they were doing? Like, how? Wh- like to what extent do you follow orders? When do you stop? I mean, I'm, I think... I don't... I think all three of us, as far as I can tell, are not exactly, you know, the kind of people who would hurt others because we were told to. For me, I've always found that to be a difficult, like it's a blunt instrument, hmm. right? But generally speaking, you you know you need that kind of blunt instrument to do things like warfare. But lately, I've been uh, very obsessed with Napoleon and reading a lot about him and listening to podcasts about him uh, called uh, "The Age of Napoleon." For anyone who who wants to get into that, and you realize like soldiers are desensitized to, to this constantly. And so when they go into these situations, I think they're they're programmed like specifically to just follow orders. And I don't know if they're actually thinking it like if the soldiers are thinking through what they're doing in this situation, they're just doing their jobs. And it's like 
it's a particularly hard time to do my job right now. But they're, you know, they're still just doing their jobs. Well, and look at what's happening to them if they don't. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I, I this is a, a macabre aside, but I think it's relevant. I, I've personally been to um, the killing fields in Cambodia Ooh. for the 19, you know, 1975 to 78 genocide that went on there on their own people. Very, very terrible and sad. There's a grave site for the soldiers who refused to follow the Khmer Rouge's orders, mm. who were in the Khmer Rouge. And there, as soon as you refused to kill these people that were out there, they just cut off your head. Yeah. Right? So your only option for a lot of the time is, oh, okay, either kill this child in the Cambodian context, or we're going to decapitate you. Right. Right? We, like, uh, what world is that for? Yeah, we kind of talk about this in, like, The Patriot, right? But it's like... When you're a soldier, you you even stand in a line and shoot at another line of people. <laughs> and like and, and that's something you do, right? There's a really good Black Mirror episode about soldiers and I don't know, this yes, was maybe you're right, that is a great episode. Spoilers for an episode of Black we, Mirror. We always but... put additional spoilers. Oh, okay, okay, spoil okay. Away. okay, okay. I can't remember the title of it, but basically it's the soldiers are facing off against these these mutated people and you see them and they're all like bestial and pale and like screaming and yelling. And we find out through everything because every episode of black mirror ends because it's a chip in someone's head. There's a chip in the soldier's head that like makes them see they code the enemy as these like, you know, voiceless screaming, ravening beasts. Whereas really we find out like his chip gets damaged and it's like a regular person who's like, Hey, please don't kill me, man. And, what he sees is just this monster yelling and snarling at him. And so he's like, oh, well, these monsters are yelling and snarling and killing people, so just kill them. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. is there is the turn of that Black Mirror episode not the moment when one of the soldiers, like the the mechanism that's being used to see these people as monsters snarling doesn't work? Yeah. And, yeah, he's, because he's, the, damaged. The, the and he just sees them as people, yeah. right? The, be- or the beasts have developed right. a weapon to basically yeah. interrupt the chip uh, signal. Okay, that is perfect because that was going to be my next point. Was Boom. one of my all-time favorite Hitchens isms on this topic was he was talking about how and this is actually something that terrifies me about AI as weaponry, but anyway, that's a that's a later podcast. It's another Black Mirror episode. Like <laughs> yeah, <too>. exactly. <laughs> he says the fatal flaw of the tank is the tank driver because the tank driver can always read poetry. Right. And the soldier being a human being can always be pulled back to the humanity of the right. situation in the black mirror it's when right they see them as people and or it's like the and, story of the of christmas you know between the germans and the and the allies oh yeah the soccer game they right play the soccer yeah. game right the humanity still there yeah yeah and and i guess i can't really remember exactly what it is in the stand but i think like there's a few scenes of soldiers standing up to the people yeah and so like they're they're i guess there's like not hopeless right like there's still the ability and I guess it, it comes kind of back to leadership or like knowing what you will and won't do <laughs> for like what reason is good enough to do this terrible thing. Yeah. And being very clear on that. I feel like the more thoughtful you become, the more aware you become, the less reasons exist to do those terrible things. Mm. Right. Because what are you doing them for? Like you have to, you have to believe some pretty difficult things to believe to think that doing a horrible thing is justified. Well, there's a reason why like a lot of soldiers are targeted right out of high school yeah, or where they're super impressionable right, yeah. and they can just be like, well, they're the bad guys. So go. And you're like, okay, well, I don't well, know any on, different on that point. Um, if any listener is interested, you should watch the documentary series. The, I think it's called the Vietnam war. 
by Ken Burns and Lynn Novak. It's like a 12-hour documentary series on the war in Vietnam and how much of the PTSD and the kind of like American fallout of it was that they went after young working class men in the United States. Yeah. And that's who had to fight. I mean, that's who fights every war. But <laughs> yeah. but we just have so much more data about the Vietnam War to, to chew on mm-hmm. and, and video of it. Like it was the first videoed war kind of yeah. nonstop. So there's just so much more imagery from it. And you're like, holy fuck, what's happening to these poor kids? They're just children yeah. still, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why Kurt Vonnegut calls the Slaughterhouse-Five like the children's crusade, Yeah, <laughs> right? Like yeah. it's, we, we ask children to go slaughter each other for our wars kind of thing. And I guess, I don't know, like I just, like at what point are you sitting in those Humvees as the soldiers, guns pointed at people with the orders like, well, we don't want the news to get out to, like, when are you in a different game? You know, I think we talked about, we talked about last episode with Infinite Jazz, the Eric Clipperton story, yes. right? Where just for your knowledge really there's this character in the infinite just story who plays tennis with a gun on the court pointed at his own head in case Same. he ever loses he's going to blow his own brains out and so nobody wants to beat him <laughs> right <laughs> so like no that's how he him, wins yeah. tennis he just guilts people into not playing him that sounds like something michael scott would do <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> exactly yeah. and we talked about this is a category error like what point as a soldier are you in a category error yeah, because you don't want to. How bad do you want to win a game of tennis that it costs somebody their life? Exactly. Yeah. You don't. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, like, how bad as a soldier do you want to prevent word spreading about the super flu? And you have to really have you know, a lot of faith in your superiors to be like mowing down civilians. Mm-hmm. Or like, look what's happening in Belarus right now. Right. Right. Like, there are soldiers, at, and those incentives are different. But in this, I guess the stand isn't a perfect example of this because. Like, everything's falling apart. But in Belarus, it's like, well, the soldiers are serving the person who pays them and mm. will take care of their families. And right. they have a better position in Bad society. Incentives. Yeah, the incentives are there. Here, I don't understand their incentive for mowing people down. It's interesting as well. They point out all the soldiers that... There's enough times they mention it when they go to a town... It's always like people remark like it's all really young soldiers and nobody has wedding bands and like or or we see really old like generals and those are the people who are here to control because it's almost like well these people are gonna die too because the flu's out so right. we're just gonna you know it's like it'll it'll keep you busy until you can all be dead and then we can I don't know fight off and it do out, whatever yeah. else mm-hmm. which is interesting you know because obviously maybe maybe the people that were left were the ones that are fine with mowing down people in Humvees because everybody who was, and this is not to say that once you're married, you're like a responsible person or anything, but like <laughs> the way it's framed is like maybe people who have families or have obligations, mm-hmm. yeah, they they're more likely there, to say right? no or, or resign or, or, you know, you know, resign their command or whatever. There's a tempering effect of having more responsibilities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It makes sense. And yeah. in, in, in the time it was written in 78, you know, Stephen King's frame of knowledge was like, well, once you have a family and you're a family man, you settle down. Like that's <laughs> fine. And, yeah, it can be Didn't translated he see the to the shining. <laughs> it can be translated to you know, yeah, more responsibility means more awareness means less shooting people. In well, and you'll notice like one of the main motifs of Stephen King's work is the absence of responsible adults. Like there's just so many stories. It's not as much in the stand, but like it and um, uh, Stand By Me. Carrie. Even. Even. Carrie, yeah. Like, just, just like, where are all the responsible adults? All the ones left are either bullies or incompetent or uninterested in you as the <laughs> kids, right? Yeah. And and we see a lot of that actually in 
the stand, although most of them don't make it or we don't follow their stories for very long. But like Franny's mom, for example, is someone who I think makes Fran's life pretty hard unnecessarily. She doesn't seem responsible. Fran's dad is responsible, but he's he also kind of is he's a bit of a pushover like oh you know like Mm -hmm. the the way that guy narrated like he put on this manor accent he's like oh yeah that's your ma she's just the way she is and like he was just kind of like a go along to get along type of guy which Mm -hmm. is not necessarily what makes a great leader and a great responsible person if he's just like well my wife's a monster Mm -hmm. but what am i gonna do about it well yeah i would say it's one of my favorite stephen king motifs is his he kind of is isolating so many of his heroes because they're alone like in some fact like the people who should be there to help them aren't Mm. in a kind of normal situation and you know that's horrifying for a lot of people right like that the 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 horror of the terrible elements of human emotion are so around in his work that it's it's kind of beautiful actually how he manages to craft (laughs) it yeah you know can convey it yeah and yeah that scene in the auditorium was just like to me that was the the nadir of the book like the the trough, the lowest point, the lowest rock, the rock bottom of the stand. I like that it flashes to another segment after that, and like someone's watching the TV and is like, "Man, this is really realistic. Like, it really looks like they're like <laughs> yeah. these effects are really good. Like, not really knowing no, what's yeah, happening, and it's like uh, <laughs> perhaps a critique of the average American entertainment consumer." <laughs> but there's also the uh, the scene where they're testing, doing tests on. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, is it Stu? No. On Stu. Yeah. yeah they have doing Stu tests in, on in Stu. The, in the hospital in and like, they New eventually, Hampshire, I think. Yeah. They yeah. eventually fully inject like a viral load that should kill him into him. Yeah. Tell him that they're sedating him, but they, they their intention is to kill him the, and, and his body just kills the virus. Mm. And you're left with like the thought of the authorities are, are again discarding life. They, they, they would justify them that to themselves by saying, oh, well, we're trying to find a cure. But in reality, they're just they're trying to kill someone. Well, it's like they're... the kill the one to save the many yeah. argument. Yeah. Well, and that's I wonder how much Stephen King would have known about the Tuskegee or I, I'm, I'm Tuskegee. Uh, Tuskegee, yeah. Apologies for getting that naming correct. Where it was um, like scientists in the South in the U.S. I thought, oh, well, I don't know for sure it was in the South. So somewhere in the U.S., probably Sci- in Tuskegee. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, uh, but scientists were injecting specifically black patients with syphilis oh yeah to Jesus. test the syphilitic oh, symptoms wow. and how to treat it and but they were lying to them they weren't they didn't say it was syphilis right it's like this is a placebo like, yeah, that's a real I, life a example that. Yeah. of that point you're making yeah. where it's just it's it's so terrible but also like we do do that to animals the lab treatment of animals obviously different like i'm, I'm making a, it's a category difference but it's like a very not the most brit- br- brightly line lit category difference between right. like how we treat living creatures. Yeah, for the and a lot can be justified as done under the name of science mm-hmm. and human progress, and we have a lot to thank from this progress. But it <laughs> it had a lot of monsters yeah. to make those, and we don't want to. Yeah, we shuffle that. It's like factory farming, right? Don't, yeah. Don't yeah. show, me, don't show yeah. me the video. I mean, in the movie Contagion, they're testing on either chimpanzees or rhesus monkeys, and it's the fifty seventh monkey that survives with the vaccines that yeah. means 56 of them die yeah with the direct injection know, injection yeah. so i don't know it's just something kind of sad but worth thinking about i guess the only other thing i thought worth talking about in the world is like what we the, the mental in COVID, it's the mental health 
like what's what remnants are left for the survivors kind of thing and there's these really hauntingly beautiful passages of the people who die after yeah like who survive the super i think flu. that was my literally my favorite yes. part of the book it was right up there for sure like one guy comes from a catholic family and so he can't suicide right because it's a mortal sin yeah. so, so he, jogs he had dies. 11 kids who died and his wife and so he jogs, and I, I, don't, I don't know, can't remember what. I think he just, he just ends up jogging until his heart gives out. Yeah, yeah. right? Um, the one woman who falls in the well. Uh, I think the saddest one was the lady who, like, got married and was hated her husband, and then he died, so she put her in the meat freezer, and she was like, now everything's coming up me. Oh, I'm going to go down to the meat freezer. Locked in. Fuck. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yes. 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 You know, she, she's just, like, so happy to be out of this marriage. But and then... then- Oops. And then, the, and then done. The sadness and despair were palpable yes. in those scenes, right? And and I mean, it's great in the book. The the real life COVID equivalent, I would say, is like for me personally, I can speak to this kind of low key glacial but present de- depression that's coming in. You know, just like the mental health of not being able to see friends, not exactly sure what the social norms are around seeing friends. Like, am I offending you if I ask to to, to go hang out? Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. like what. Can what? I shake your hand? What do I do about hugs? Yeah, like, it was super. Actually, I was walking to. I think I was going to the grocery store yesterday, and I saw this woman. Just get out of her car, and she like, she goes up to the, the steps of a house, and she knocks the door, and then she steps way back to the edge of the porch, and the door opens, and then I just kind of like, I, I cross the plane of the house, and she's talking, and she's like, "Hey, uh, do you want me to wear my mask in the house? Like, what do you want me to do?" And like, she's like asking her friend, like, is like, "Oh yeah, there's a new social." like equation that we have to factor in. I've had people come up to me when I've introduced myself and they're like, Oh, let me shake your hand. You're like, I'm good. Like, actually I don't, I don't need to do that right now. And it's just weird. And those are things we mostly ingest as children through our culture. So it's not really a conscious effort to decide how we do it. There's, there's no actual agreed upon way of doing there's this. no one way to do it right because right? yeah. there's some people you'll offend by not shaking their hand because they're like oh you still care about this covid thing <laughs> right like, i think they drive the covid 1984 mobile <laughs> <laughs> right like no but I'm, it's it's weird right because there's there's this social divide that's occurring that i really thought at the beginning of this whole covid thing that it would bring us all together but it is like yeah. it is <laughs> well again this is this is my point if it was epidemiologically yeah. worse it yeah. would yeah because there would be more human suffering yes in the forefront a lot of the suffering is either like in retirement homes or in the hospital in the icu in the incubators we don't see that right there aren't people with their eyes bleeding in the street coughing yeah. up their lungs if there was it'd be different yeah right this true. is what i mean it's like it's just bad enough virally to be disastrous socially yeah yeah and I mean, I was on the train today. I took the train down to the mall, and there was four people around me that didn't have masks on, even though it's, like, mandated to wear a mask on public transit. These four people, and I know there's exemptions for people who have medical reasons, but it just kind of beggared belief that four (laughs) people all appearing to be very healthy and, again, like, this is me kind of, like, owning my side of my, like, knee-jerk, like, ah, put a mask on, you fucking idiot. You know, maybe yeah, right. maybe the, the statistics don't support that all of them had a v- valid medical reason not to wear a right. mask. And one of them had the mask on, but it was like under the nose. And it's just like, well, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> yeah. why, why do you why, get why to do, be yeah, special? Yeah, yeah. A bad fashion statement. <laughs> yeah. So my knee-jerk reaction was like, well, you're not wearing a mask. You don't care about people. And it's like, well, maybe they do. But <laughs> yeah. also, you're annoying me. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I don't know. Uh, like, obviously, you neither of you have to share anything personal you don't want to. But have you felt different mentally and psychologically from this lockdown? Like, not absolutely. lockdown. Yeah? Absolutely. I think I might be more myopic than I would like to admit. Hmm. And that that's something that is... Here's what I have thought. I, I've taken this time to really do a, a deep dive uh, internally to try to, like, do some renovations on... You know, maybe some insecurities that I have and all this kind of stuff, but a bit, it's been so self-focused. I wouldn't say that I've felt different. I felt, I feel better, right? Like this has been a good, it's weird. This has been a great year for me, right? Uh, like, yeah. Like, like personally, ton, you've yeah, had personally, really I've had stuff. a spectacular year and, and I haven't really changed my life that much, but I think. But there were a few dog days of but, but, like but what I was gonna May say and is, June where you're like, but, get but, me out of this yeah, basement. Well, that's what I was going to say. But what I will say is early. Like I would say from March till June, there was a, a weekend where we finally got to go visit my parents after a long time of not seeing basically anyone. And um, I didn't want to come back here because I didn't like being here anymore. And if I, you want, I can learn more jokes. <laughs> and He's uh, packing a suitcase right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about how being alone, even when you have a phone, even when you have the internet. Oh, God, yeah. Even when you have roommates. I mean, like, Luke and I didn't necessarily, but, you know, one of our roommates, we, we, we te- I tended to really clash with. That would be my sister. Yeah. <laughs> and... Being stuck, like, we, I don't think we saw anybody else for months. And that's just, just people I saw at work. Yeah, and, and, you wouldn't have, and you wouldn't have seen I anyone just anyone. over Zoom. <laughs> yeah, like, that was rough. And I don't, I, it's interesting because I didn't think that it didn't feel rough at the time. It, just, it felt normal, but off. But looking back on it, I don't think I was doing as well as I thought I was. And I think that's something that's interesting for everyone to think about. Are you really doing as well as you think you are? Well, for me as well, I'm very similar. I, you know, the first couple of weeks it was like, oh God, what am I going to do? Stressing out. And so I threw myself into projects. You know, everybody seemed to like, there was like, the, if you're really productive at the start of quarantine, you either learned how to make sourdough bread or started a podcast oh. <laughs> and I started a podcast. Right. But like, I, it right. also helped me in myriad ways. I had recently at the start of this year decided to quit drinking and you know, that helped not yeah. having the social yeah. pressure to go out to a bar and like party. That was helpful. But I remember the first time I was at a distant social gathering, it was at midsummer. It was so June 21st. And it was the first time I was like, oh my God, there are multiple conversations happening here. And it's not just one person in a little square on my computer saying a thing <laughs> while I'm waiting for right. like my turn to talk or two people are talking at once and it's an incomprehensible garble of noise. And I'm like, I hate this. Yeah. Like it was like, I'm talking to somebody and I can hear in my peripheral hearing, that's a thing, yeah. right? Sure. <laughs> I think My so, peripheral yeah. hearing that someone else is talking about something completely different in their own sort of little section. And it's just like, oh, this is what... I missed because Zoom communication is great. One-on-one, I preferred it because it's like you're just talking to a person. But in a group setting, it was very much like show and tell where you're like, today I brought this class and everyone has to listen to you talk and then it's someone else's turn. And it's just not... It's more performance-based. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so I really missed out on that. I really missed out on a lot of like, uh, you know, physical contact with people, you know, 
getting hugs. I'm yeah. just hugging people. <laughs> yeah. Just the in, uh, intangibilities of the intimacy of personal conversation. Yeah. And like being present and noticing all of the different uh, quirks of communication through body language and tone and style and just like things that you can kind of get away with on Zoom that you just would never be able to give you almost a good comedy bit. I mean, I guess this happens, but like you're just talking to someone who's like three feet away from you and just while you're talking to them, they just look at their phone. They're just looking at their phone while you're talking. It's like, it's like the same on Zoom, but yeah. it's just there's 20 other people there. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, it's fine. Trying to get away with it. Right? <laughs> true. Yeah. True. And it's, so I struggled, but I threw myself into activities and kept myself busy. And, and I agree, like, weirdly enough for as weird and crappy as 2020 has been, it's given me a lot of time to grow sort of in myself and in my own identity. Yeah, that's good. And form relationships, even though they are online, like forming tighter relationships with Mm. people who are all in the same boat. And it's like you say it didn't bring society together under this big happy umbrella, but I have have definitely gotten closer to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think it's kind of how you use it. Right. Like I got the, you know, the, to experience just a very deep, meaningful sense of peace for a little while mm-hmm. uh, because my life is usually so hectic. And like, I honestly, right. it honestly made me reflect on why am I always pushing myself so hard? Why am I always doing things? Go, 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 go. And then as we started to come out of it, and this is the interesting thing with the stand, right? Is it's like, the crisis happens, but then the people that are left still have to live. Yeah. And then they're, they're encountering, and I, that's how I kind of I feel, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, so this thing's happened, and, and everything's changed, mm-hmm. but I still have to live. Yeah. And like, what does that look like now? Yeah. And it's suddenly the basic anxieties, and we see this in the stand, of like, how are we going to have a kid? Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or like, how are we gonna I, make sure and we we're, we're experiencing yeah. that on a way less level, but like, how are we going to do school now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? How are we going to balance budgets now? Mm-hmm. How are we going to do, you know, how are we going to do restaurants now? Right. And it's yeah. like, and, and honestly. Weddings. Yeah. It birthdays. feels more stressful now. Mm-hmm. Right. Because because now, now we have to think about just this next other thing. Right. Right. That, and life was already well so hectic. Those, the first, like the two weeks in March when the lockdown happened, I don't know what you two felt, but I felt like, oh, every day we're just taking a giant step towards hell. Yeah. Like it, just, <laughs> it just felt and like... it felt like a really long time. Yeah, but it, but it, it like did. every day seemed to be just like a brand new terribleness. And you know, were, it's like, we have to do this now. And then the next day, and like after five days, it's like, this has been five days? Of it? Like, it, it felt, felt like, like this has been forever that now. That was when I started seeing things online of people being like, you know, I'm I'm done living through a mo- monumental moment of history. Can we be done now? It's like, <laughs> yeah. Oh. And everyone being like, don't worry, May is going to be great. No. <laughs> don't worry, well, summer's do going to be great. No. Remember like, the first time we went to yeah, the grocery right. store yeah. together? Yeah. That was the weirdest, yeah. one of the weirdest mm-hmm. life experiences I've ever had is, the, is mm-hmm. stepping into the outside world again mm-hmm. after this mm-hmm. and uh because i spent the first three weeks of kobe with my my brother-in-law and sister and then i came back here and so it was it been a month since i'd left the house basically yeah and that, yeah it was just a very yeah and i guess like i just i have felt similar to the characters who have to figure out how to live like now that Again, the crisis is over, and the cri—I mean, they had to deal with a lot of crises along the way. But the main one being the super flu that killed all of them. And then, how do we find food? How do we get? Um, I just like I've 
experienced like fatigue and headaches and you know i've been i I sought some medical treatment for it and it's been clear and good so that's nice i feel better but i've definitely been manifesting symptoms of like mental health fatigue (laughs) to say the least right you burned out you burned out so easily and um the philosopher in me is something like well ideally certainly not always existent but ideally in the, the point of a free society is to let people have human nature kind of organically blossom in ways that are pro-social and pro-life-giving and pro-psychological and like we obviously disincentivize the poor ones with our laws hopefully and incentivize the good ones and try to find the the better side of human nature to come out and yet with a pandemic so much of human nature is what's um, being fucked with (laughs) right like in the stand yeah will we have babies that seems relevant to the decisions people will make yes (laughs) yeah like where were we going to get food? How will we heal if we get sick? Like, who's a doc? Who can fix this? Like, we are so far removed from the hunter gatherer, <laughs> like progenitors of our species that know, like, no, how do we do this? What do I do other than these projects? Like, I guess it's the activities and the projects that you're talking about. And I, I agree that that's what's filled my bucket. But like, I had a good friend. I, uh, I still have a good friend. <laughs> I had a good talk with a, a good friend yesterday or two days ago. And it was like, he still is uncomfortable leaving the house. And I have a different level of comfort, but I feel like I have I want to respect his feelings because he has different reasons. Like he has more immunocompromised people in his life than I do. And I don't know. I've personally found it harder to find common ground with pe- level of comfort with people in my physical life, like in the world around me in Calgary and my work. Uh, it's a little easier online if you can find people like that. But yeah, I'm still struggling personally with the how do we restart human nature in a pro-social way here, you know? And I think that that's really well captured, actually, in that segment. Yeah. 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 So that's what I think about that. There we go. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> um, there's a scene, when you're talking about skills and, and, and stuff, there's mm. a scene partway through the book when they're all together, and it's it's like Stu and Fran and, oh, crap, what's the other kid's name? Howard. Harold, yes. Harold, 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 Harold. Yeah, there I am. Not good at names. Oops. Hey, uh, but they're not they're, unique on this podcast. <laughs> no, no, they're um, they're going along and they they meet up with that other people and there's that scene where a guy gets appendicitis and oh, they have to like try yeah. to do surgery on him and he dies and then his his girlfriend or his partner is like, wasn't it great how you studied sociology and you studied poetry and like isn't that fucking useful now? And it's like. <laughs> You know, yeah, nobody right, learned yeah. how to do like a, yeah. a skill. You know, nobody oh, learned how to do anything yeah, useful in the yeah, pandemic yeah, because yeah. everyone was so academic. And mm. I, I would say that if there was an apocalypse, maybe podcasting is not the skill <laughs> to be cultivating. True, but true. Yeah. Although guaranteed, the person who got their hands on the radio yeah, would become sure. one of the most powerful people in that world. Yeah, absolutely, true, true. right? There's different things, but it's, it was just sort of funny to be like, yeah, everyone goes to like college and takes like a philosophy oh, degree or yeah. takes like a anthropology degree or something, and it's like that doesn't do any good if there's no supermarkets and mm. you have to learn how to farm again or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, I mean, on a lot of episodes before, Dave and I have talked about our appreciation for people in the trades. Oh, so man. like it's it's a very yeah. big. I, I I think this is a digression, but I think one of the greatest disservices I ever got was in high school being told that you don't want to like end up some dumb plumber you have to go to university and like yeah, the way six figure earning plumbers the way, right yeah. the way they demonized <laughs> the trades as like less than it was just like 
that's so fucked up. And I was so impressionable that like mm-hmm. I believed it. I went to that, university. Although, again, <laughs> I will uh, digress on your digression. How dare you? That's uh, <laughs> that's not a modern thing. Like, no, you absolutely. Can, not. You can read um, store like uh, academics from like two, three, four, f- four hundred years ago. Not as much, but like in the, in. The, the rise of the merchant class mm. in Europe yeah. brought a lot of ire from the aristocrat, uh, aristocrat, yeah. not aristocrats. Yeah, was, they, they're like, "How dare you earn money?" Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like um, you weren't born into it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like uh, people who would hustle to make flow. <laughs> I can't put it more there. You uh, go. chronistically than that. There we go. Uh, you know, like the the merchant really... class. So our modern version of a merchant class is something like the trades, mm. right? Like yep. people who hustle to bring value to other people. Essentially, this would be something, I, I think psychologically, this would be what would be getting the aristocrats butt hurt is like, oh my gosh, this lowborn hustling to help this other lowborn and their lives are better. They don't need me. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like Uh-oh. my relevance is, is diminishing if these riffraff <laughs> can just take care of themselves. <laughs> well, before long, they're going to look and be like, why are we paying our bullshit taxes to this fuck? and then you have the then revolution you, the french revolution and the rich, well, yeah. Yeah, that, that might be a little overcorrection sorry billy you were saying no I, that's fine yeah this is i don't now know we really digress this, to this, this is yeah, no, it's, i think it's a good I'm point i'm gonna turn this stand-up broom around <laughs> and head back into character oh, talk. there we go we need a job bluth riding his residence way no reg segue ah anyway <laughs> don't you remember that scene in arrested development where yeah. Joe Bluth is just driving around on the Segway. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And he's, oh, yeah. like, I, trying course. to get over the rock, but he's, like, the president, but he lost the pee. So he's oh, just resident. the resident. Yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. Nothing on the inside, Michael. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Well, this is fun. Heroes? Heroes. Heroes. Yeah, we can start with Stu. Okay. What do you think? I like Stu. Yeah, he, he's very much the quiet leader. Like, you can tell that even in the very first scene where they're in the gas station, I don't recall him being one that's talking much. It's like Hapscomb and the owner, they're they're the ones talking so right. much. And Stu's just kind of there. And it seems like he's always just sort of been there and been quiet and like observant. Observant? That's how you say that word. I'm nailing it. Observantable. Observantable, yes. And then it turns out that he's one of those people who like is just – you know, he's he seems calm in a situation. He has good ideas. And so people look to him and he kind of gets this leadership thrust upon him. And in as much as there is a person who could win the pandemic, I guess he does a pretty good job by the end of the book. Yeah. And I mean, he in the narrative, he provides the other characters with some context about what's going on. That's true, yeah. Because he's able to, like, he was there at the beginning, weirdly. Like, if you actually think statistically, the probability of the first person with the flu yeah, and then finding the person who, like, becomes one of the main people in the survival. Like, yeah, just- that's true. I guess he he does serve as, like, I have exposition for all of you people. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. And he, you know, he just brings in knowledge around, like, but he, immunity. He and also rises to, like, a, pos- a position of leadership, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. we, see, we see him kind of becoming... I don't know. We coming into his own in a way because he starts off as kind of like one of the forgotten, right? I I like him as a character a lot because he stayed 
in his little town and he's kind of been there. He East helped. Texas. Yeah, and he's like yeah. was paying paying for his brother's schooling, I believe. And like so by doing that he wasn't able to go to school and he's smart, but you know, he's never really had an opportunity to realize his potential. And it's funny because he becomes you know, kind of the great leader. He's kind of like a George Bailey. I just made mm. that connection. You oh, know, yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. a wonderful life. Like he, yeah. he it's always a good way of putting he it. He always yeah. did what he had to to like support his family, support his town, and and he was the linchpin of the community. And like maybe this is kind of reluctant, reluctant, but he did but what he had to. And then, he's kind of like he'll shoulder responsibility, and it turns out shouldering responsibility in a post-apocalyptic goes world a long way. This is the exact deal. opposite yeah. of oh, it's a wonderful life. It's not what if George Bailey didn't exist, but what if nobody else did? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like that. That's really good. That's really good. That's funny. Um, yeah, it's true. So yeah, I I, I like the character his character arc. Uh, but he's kind of a little bit cliche, mm-hmm. and like kind of you know strong man, the strong silent, silent type man hero. Yeah, I yeah, I guess I th- like because I I often look. Uh, one of the the side effects of really true fiction is I I look for so many pa- like parallel parallelisms in stories, and he's kind of like shows us what Harold could have been. Yeah, in a sense, right? Oh, like yeah. he's kind of what. I mean, even their genesis is different in that obviously Stu is not an intellectual and I would say Harold is an intellectual at the beginning or like, you know, that kind of late teen. Well, he's uh, certainly a... Higher than thou, push my glasses up. Well, actually. Yeah, you know, like, he's definitely read Nietzsche kind of thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, Harold... Actually, here's the connection. Harold... We'll talk about him more, but he reminded me of Ponytail Guy in Goodwill Hunting. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the I like guy that. who's just I like that. So it, it, intelligence becomes his identity, and his yeah, identity, yeah, is yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's like pure intellectualism to mask over any other kind of insecurities that are clearly Absolutely. there. Yeah, yeah. That. Whereas Stu doesn't have that intellectualism, but he's like he's curious. He's not like when you'll notice when Stu talks some of his conversations with Glenn and Glenn is like giving his kind of like lecture, not lectures exactly, but talking about sociology. Stu's not like, that's stupid or no way, Glenn. Yes, he's like, "Hmm." he's observant. He's like, hmm, interesting. I actually love how Stephen King has a character who just spends time extrapolating on sociology for us (laughs) so that he can talk about what a sociology would be like in a post-pandemic world. But you know how many appendixes that sociologist effectively took out? Zero. Zero. (laughs) No, no. I know. But I just... I enjoy no, I love it that, too. It's best. Oh there, well, yeah. we we needed a Glenn in this book. Yes, yes. We I really liked did. Glenn. Yeah, uh, and I like that Stu and Glenn. Like Stu seemed to be the kind of perfect backdrop for for somebody who is smarter than Stu. Like Stu is maybe not the smartest, but he's definitely the most observant. He's probably like, and he can learn. He's he can learn. And he's probably one of the most wise. And yes, like I he'll like that. he'll point out he'll point out things that like somebody who is on paper smarter than him will have overlooked you know i think he makes a point of he, he makes him really he's precious. very present yeah right he, he just yeah. he just knows to pay attention well i mean there's a few favorite but i would say my favorite part of Stu, if i had to pick one is that he is the most vocal proponent of if they catch them harold and nadine getting a trial yeah for the explosion oh, yeah, yeah, not yeah. just murdering them because they did it right yeah and so Stu has um, well, he, he believes that the that laws like that there has. Well, to he be he order. has what I would call the civilizational impulse. Yes, yes. Right. He yeah. Has but Glenn kind impulse. of pounds that into him a little bit too. Like he's kind of Glenn is kind of like mm-hmm. almost like your your um your you know priest of passing down well, knowledge, making sure that people 
people have that information he's trying to preserve something yeah if Stu doesn't meet glenn i feel like Stu just finds a finds a house in maine and is like well i live here now yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but i mean i don't know maybe i don't this might not quite rise to the level of an archetype of a character but i i find myself attracted to the the characters who do have that civilizational impulse like mm, are you caught up on the expanse uh, no, I've only watched season one and two. Okay, I won't give this example then. I haven't watched but, the okay. final season. Okay, so I'll think of a completely different show that probably <laughs> doesn't matter as much if I spoil. There's this TV show on Showtime called The Affair, and it's, well, you can imagine, it's a lot of infidelity goes on on this show, and I, I watched mm-hmm. it a little bit as a guilty pleasure because, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like sex stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, so uh, okay. but there's there's one episode where the main character who very hypocritically has had an affair with another woman but his wife has also now hooked up with another guy so there's been two affairs basically in this family now or i can't remember anyway something really terrible happens to this guy's family that would make him want to kill this person and he's like yeah i want to kill him but i won't because i'm a fucking civilized human being <laughs> I want them to have a trial. Right. Right. And it's like, hmm, it's interesting that that can be out there in the ether of like just general social philosophy for people to cop to in a moment of personal anger. Right. Well, isn't that the greatest thing about civilization is that somehow we've taken a, we've taken that instinct, which is still like, we haven't biologically evolved very far past that. Well, no, <laughs> but we've somehow psychologically, or rather sociologically, and then well, both. Impacted, yeah, a little both, both. Both we've we've been able to civil. We've literally civilized ourselves to the point where we we check ourselves when we have these extreme emotions. And in fact, people who act on those extreme emotions are seen as you know as a problem. Mm. He's a flexible-minded leader too, right? Like well, what he's, he's, and he is a consultative leader, yeah, but he's, he's also like, a decisive leader, it. right? Like, so sometimes consultative leaders have the problem of they can never make a decision. He doesn't have that problem. Eventually, he's like, well, this is what we're going to do. But he also isn't going to everyone and saying, and, and like waving it over their head and saying, I'm the boss and you got to do what I say. And I That's like true. that. He'll make a decision, but he will listen to all the sides and everyone will be like, I said what I said. Thanks for listening to me, Stu. And he's like, great. Now I get to decide. Yeah. Well, but he's never like, he's never like, now I'm the decider. He's just like, yeah. well, let's do this. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, sounds good, Stu. Okay, there yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. Once he listens, he's not scared to make a hard decision or at least vote in a hard direction. Yeah. With yeah. the committee for a decision, right? Like, I, I think maybe it was when they decided to send the spies out. Yeah. And Fran was having none of that. No. Right? And, not and one he, bar. And, of it. and he, and like, this is what I was so, kind of cool about Stu is he's like, I think. Fran, I think you're you're right in as far as it goes, but it just doesn't go far enough for what we need, yeah. right? And we need something else. And I hate I hate to vote this way with my heart, but my head says we have to for this. Yeah, right. And just like that ability to kind of be conscientiously dualistic, yeah, in his own self attention, I guess, is really impressive in a person, right? Yeah, yeah, and. I think it's because he doesn't have some of the insecurities that Harold has because he doesn't build himself up in that way. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. He seems to be much less ego driven. He's not like, I'm doing this because I want people to go, yay, Stu, you're number one. Stu for sheriff. Yeah. No, let's, thank you. Let's no. make, yeah, let's make a statue of Stu. And he's like, I don't 
no thanks. I just this is what needs to get done, and and this is the way we should go about it. He's very practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like I like that he just understands there's things that need to get done. Right. I always imagine, but he's not he's just older. reflective about it. No, right? it's like oh, s- spies. Yeah, fuck yeah, let's go. No, no, it's like hear everybody out. Anyway, sorry, I cut you off, Billy. No, no, no. I was just gonna say I, I kind of I had imagined him as sort of maybe mid forties, early thirty or early fifties, but I think he's written a bit younger than that. Like I think he's maybe in his late to mid thirties. Well, something we didn't mention yet, I can't believe is that uh, the stand is actually going to be a TV show this fall. Yes, yes. It'll probably be. So we're actually for future world uh, slash present world. When you're listening, chew on that for a second. (laughs) Podcast (laughs) time is weird. Yeah. the stand TV show is coming out fall of 2020 and we're recording this September of 2020. So before it's come out, Mm -hmm. but we do know the casting. And so I'm looking, um, James Marsden is playing Stu in the show. So Cyclops himself and, uh, Greg, Greg Kinnear is playing Glenn Bateman. And for some reason, I just think those two actors having the conversations that they do in the story will be awesome. I just, I really love Greg Kinnear in general. And I'm glad that he's become, one of the go-to avuncular characters now in Hollywood. Yeah, he's aged into those roles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he has, know? he has. You too. know, he's like the next Morgan Freeman kind of type. <laughs> and just to, to have the two of them talk together, I think will be will be great. It's going to be good. I can't imagine they'll have all of their scenes translated onto film, but no, they have but, a couple. But but the Stu-Glenn relationship is really important in The Stand. Absolutely. So they yeah. have to have some. Yeah, they'll do, yeah. And I mean, the nice thing about TV shows is you get a longer time horizon to do these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, the only other thing I noticed about Stu was that he was like, what did you think about him saying, oh, because at the end of the book, they leave Colorado, right? They go back, they go back, to, go back Maine. to Maine. And yeah. one of the reasons Stu is saying that is because, well, I don't really like how this place is trending. So like the sociological stuff he learned from Glenn becomes kind of useful at the end of the book where he's like, well, there seems to be this like aspiring strong man yeah. <laughs> in this yeah, camp yeah, yeah. and I know where that goes. So it's like even that wisdom of him knowing about human nature, you'll notice a lot about these people that we're talking about, the stew types, they might not be book smart, but fuck, are they street smart? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely, yeah. Well, well, I think that's part of it. You're not going to survive in a post-apocalyptic world if you're not street smart. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Like, did you, any thoughts on the ending with, with him there? I think the ending as a whole for me, was it was a bit of a letdown. I am one hundred percent agree. Um, I loved the book up until like the last yeah because the way it sort of ends, you know, it's it's building to this big confrontation and then it kind of and fizzles it's, out. It's anticlimactic. I made it I is. made the um the, the comment to you, Luke, that like this book was basically just how much Deus Ex Machina can you fit into one book? Because everything <laughs> the <answer is> more. <laughs> the answer is so much more because like <laughs> you know, Stu is sent by mother Abigail to go to Vegas to stop Randall flag. And then he falls and he breaks his leg and he can't even go. And then, and of the all the o- gullies of all the, the only time bases. he gets, the only reason he gets saved is because Tom Cullen finds him on his way back from spying, but he wouldn't have gone out if they hadn't sent him out to spy on Vegas and they wouldn't have had to send him spies if there was bad and people what in are Vegas. The chance that he falls like, into that ditch. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it was just so much like, okay, so he falls, he, he goes on a bit of a walk. He falls and breaks his leg. He comes back and then he's like, well, see ya. I'm going back to Maine. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is no longer the free zone. No, like I, the, the, the first third of this book is amazing. Yeah. The, the second part is like thrilling. And the last part is like, 
this is how you decided to end it? Yeah. Like, it was a bit of a letdown. Yeah. yeah. I, I completely agree with you. Do you agree, Luke? The the final third of the book was the weakest. Yeah. But I kind of... I, I liked the shift in perspective, I think. The shift of, of emphasis of perspective in the book in the, in the final third kind of made it a little bit fresher for me. So the fact that we didn't really get any perspective of Randall, Flagg, or his people, except Lloyd a little bit in the beginning yes, of the book. true. Maybe some people would not like that it became less mysterious of what was going on there at the end. I kind of liked that mm. I saw that they were kind of also dealing with a lot of the same things. Like one of the what the positive theme I got out of the final third of the book is that actually this is a big fucking tragedy because these people should be working together, right? Not enemies, and they're only enemies because some propagandist said they should be right. <laughs> right? Yeah, like, right. There's a payoff there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I liked seeing, because I'm personally always looking for more idiosyncratic ways to connect people that aren't obvious or like the find that common humanity kind of thing. And it was just so there for the taking that it was part of what Larry and Ralph were, re- well, Larry especially was really trying to, to communicate Mm -hmm. like that was kind of the heroic moment for me with larry which we'll talk more about but like how he was trying to appeal to the humanity of the crowd in the dark zone yeah and it and it felt like i mean (laughs) trash can man nuke aside (laughs) detail minor detail (laughs) it it felt like he was kind of winning them over yeah he he seemed to be like changing you know hearts and mind a little like in a gladiator sense right um, yeah Commodus throws Maximus into the ring to devour him, and Maximus wins over the crowd by being of more integrity. Yeah, and then <laughs> right. everyone being like, well, you're not in charge, but we like you better, yeah. basically. I just, I don't know. I feel like the the last end of the book, it it felt like Stephen King ran out of steam. And looking at the fucking thing, it's so thick. Yeah, like, it's not surprising. You know, he was like, I'm so excited. I've got this great idea. And then he got to the end, and he's like, oh, no, um, a nuke. <laughs> yeah, okay, no, I, the I end. agree. From a storytelling <laughs> narrative point of view, it's not a good ending. Yeah. I think from a the- thematic ending, though, it's a little stronger. But, but Yes, I think so. It depends what you want to emphasize, right? Yeah, and if you kind of take everybody's arc... I mean, it, it's kind of like a weird slice of life, if you can <laughs> yeah, say that, right? right? Like, it's like, it's like, just like, oh, this is kind of a day in the life. And this was maybe, you know, Stu went out to the Rockies and then was like, no, oh, okay, off I go. Going back now, yeah. And just like, this is like, a, yeah. is a boring thing. Stu on vacation. It's almost more realistic to like, you know, Apocalypse would just be like, people would be bored so they'd be like well i wonder if i can get over the rockies okay and now i guess i'll go back <laughs> and like along the way there was uh, yeah right a devil and yeah, an angel yeah, person yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was like okay that was cool yeah there we go yeah true good point no you're i, I agree i i agree narratively not a good ending thematically it's good I, I still got stuff it's good i like i like the stuff in vegas i think right up until trash can man comes back yeah, on right his little like golf up. cart it yeah. was like cool and then they're like and then the like it's literally described as the hand of god sets it off so it's like okay there's your deus ex machina yeah. like <laughs> right yeah. press the button <laughs> yeah man it's hard to get more on the button than that hey? exactly <laughs> i think you even describe it as like hand shaped yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gives everyone a big thumbs up and then punches Boom. the nuke yeah thoughts on franny i mean i liked her she's very likable she's very charming charismatic i liked her her almost a little too goofy sometimes but like i like her her perspective in the book 
Mm-hmm. It's well, it was well done, and it's interesting. And her journey with her mom and her dad, like the background that's built for her. This is Stephen King at his best. I honestly think Stephen King is primarily a character writer mm. because, like, he writes characters he writes really, really characters. well, Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. and like you feel what those characters are feeling mm-hmm. in any given situation, and and how the evil ever present in Stephen King's universe is affecting them. Well, like there's that scene that I'll never forget where Fran is basically like hiding from Harold. Right. right. Like, yeah. Like, like, trying, like Harold's doing something and she's worried and she sneaks into the house and then trying to f- figure out how to m- make sure that Harold doesn't see that she's been in the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, he seems to have this sixth sense. She like fears him as some kind of like, almost godlike figure a little bit and right just, yeah and that is great horror writing because you feel it you are you talking about when she's in his house in boulder or like before in boulder, in boulder. okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah 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 like before the explosion but like in the like in the very near the journal, leading up to it right right yeah the, the, the journal and i think she takes the journal back to yeah she she still she finds it with larry yeah she, they she both go yeah yeah and which is like it's just such an amazing scene and, and how he describes her emotions in those moments. Mm-hmm. It's just brilliant writing. Yeah, I liked Franny too. I was drawn to her right away when she was talking and like, you know, she opens up and she's she's finds that she's fallen pregnant with this Jesse's Jesse's baby and he's kind of a loser who's like, oh, but he's he's really pretty and he does poetry and then she gets pregnant and she's like, oh, this guy sucks. <laughs> like, yeah, wow. <laughs> then, yeah. Um, but then like... And he sucks so bad he didn't want it but then was like, but I guess so. Yeah, he's like, I guess do you want to get married? And she's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> what are you no. talking about? And so I kind of liked her up to that point. Once she became a love interest for Stu, I felt like she fell away and she became less of her own character oh, and more that she was away. just like she was just like i love Stu and i want him to do the best and i was like nah, come on like mm-hmm. we could have i don't know fleshed her out a little bit more because she did seem to like stand her on her own and she was developing right. all these skills when she's taking care of harold and then as soon as like the big strong man comes she's like well i'm done and that was like oh that was yeah, a bit, yeah bit that's of a, a good point that is a good point mm-hmm. yeah fran fizzles a little bit unfortunately what i liked about her from like thinking about this a little bit outside of the story is that, I mean, all the characters do this a little bit, but I think hers were the most impactful to me about how she was like kind of our barometer of comparing and contrasting the world before the flu and the world after the flu. Yeah. Okay. She has a lot of cultural callbacks or like there'll be things that remind her of songs Mm -hmm. of the before time. Right. And there'll be things that like, will I, will I be able to tell my kid about this movie or this band? She does bring that up a lot in her journaling. Yeah. Yeah, Her, her things to remember section where she's like, like because, because that's kind of, that's in my mind a little bit too. Like COVID is obviously not (laughs) a culture destroying event, but it's like, well, do you remember when we did this? Right. And like, and I mean, even just forget, a, a, a particular pandemic like nostalgia is really important to me even right like oh my gosh remember breakfast at tiffany's that song or yeah, like yeah. oh man i think i remember the film <laughs> <laughs> yeah as i recall i think we both kind of liked it i think it's what we had <laughs> maybe it's one thing we've got exactly <laughs> Or like, remember when Oasis was a band that you could actually see live touring together? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't know, just like these kind of like beautiful throwbacks. She was kind of a time so, capsule. Yeah, and like I she, agree. That was a really good. She, she was a time capsule, and then she was like the literal progenitor of the 
human race because she's mm-hmm. pregnant. She's carrying yeah. new life. Right. We almost and have so, a children of a men esque moment. Yeah. yeah. And then the other side of that sword coin is. <laughs> Well, the other side of the coin, but like the other end of the sword. Really I don't know. Is that a, an expression? You're really putting a fine brush on that point. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> someone's got a scabbard. <laughs> okay. Uh, how she, like that scene you mentioned with the guy who died with the appendix, she couldn't believe that that happened. No. Yeah. Right? Like her paradigm of the old world included basic medical care for easy things. Yeah. Like <laughs> right? An appendix is not something that kills people anymore. You go to the doctor and boop, yeah. it's out. And, like, no. and I think... Again, all the characters have this to their degrees, but Fran's just her visceral take on the way the world is now was to me the most like enlivened. Like mm. I got the most out of her observations about the way the world's different now. Mm-hmm. And mm. so that's why I appreciated her I can presence see that. in the yeah, book yeah, yeah. a lot. She was great. I also really liked how she very politely keeps drinking the Kool-Aid that Harold made her that <laughs> right. he forgot the sugar. So she's just it's like so yeah, this is gross. Like, <laughs> like colored gross water. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Larry. Larry Underwood. Baby, can you dig your man? Wait, can you dig your man? How does it, does he do ever sing it in the so, audio? Okay, so he never sings it. There's sometimes where he'll be like sort of reading the lyrics uh, in a sing-songy way, but he always hits the chorus. He'd be always like, baby, can you dig your man? <laughs> and it was just so like... It was so pleasing because I'm like, there's almost no way it's that slow. Like I imagine it as being a much more up yeah. t- up tempo like dance <laughs> right. number. But the guy is always just like it. It sounded like William Shatner singing. <laughs> <laughs> right, so right, right. Uh, right. that was always really fun to see. And anytime they they had the lyrics, I can't recall any of them now. But he would always sort of read them in like just enough of a sing songy voice to know that it wasn't that was just lyrical. straight narration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, I mentioned, I guess, my thoughts at the beginning. Yeah, so like how that, he was selfish and then not. I do. I, he, I, I just like his redempt. He's a redemptive character. He has mm-hmm. the biggest arc, the yeah. biggest personal redemptive arc. He starts out as this selfish. He's addicted to drugs. He's coming off a bender. He's going to his like mom's house, and he's like, "Sorry, I'm such a fuck up, mom." And she's like, "It's okay. You are a bit of a fuck up. I work hard for you, and like, and but also, I don't actually care about you that much, mom. But yeah, I kind of do. But I'm gonna go do other stuff too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he takes like he's taking people for granted. He's got this date that he's like, "Okay, we had fun, but now get out." And she's like, "I hate you," and throws a spatula at him. And then like when he hooks up with Rita. That's, I think, when he starts to turn around and he's trying to help her and then he falls into his old ways and yells at her and then she cries and wails and f- follows after him and he's like, okay, I guess I'll take care of her. And then she's Heather sui- Graham in the show. Yeah. It's going to be Rita. Oh, and then she go. suicides and then he's like, oh, like that really sticks with him. And so then he tries to be better and he- And he just keeps trying to be better. And he, and he gets that chance with Joe or mm. Leo, who yeah. is the I like, think it's wild Gio. child. Or low. Low. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, Joe, no, yeah. No. And so I think that he... I loved those scenes with him and Joe. Yeah, those were great. And I think that, yeah, he, he does have the biggest redemptive arc. And if it weren't for Stu, he would, I think, have been the de facto leader of the group eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess if you compare the two of them, Stu is the guy who's been consistent consistent all through his life and his principles and larry's the one who had to learn them later Mm -hmm. and i guess i felt a lot of affinity for larry particularly when i was reading this because my life circumstances were so similar i would say like i was really happy to confront things about myself that i didn't like Mm. and like especially at the beginning you know he's going through the drinking you're just kind of so selfish in your addictions Mm. 
and even though you know your addictions are are hurting you, you're right. still clinging to them. Mm-hmm. And I just yeah, because they're like they're the ones you know. Yeah, it's right? like, there's a familiarity in your in your misery, mm. right? And he uh, there's he, a good term. <laughs> I like and, that. And you're and you're and he's it's living a band that, name, right? Yeah. He, he seems unhappy, and it's almost like the best. I guess I kind of see this for me in some ways, but like when everything gets shaken up, that gives you an opportunity to change, right? It gives you a chance to transform your life. Yeah. It's like, he doesn't want to change because he's got like a kind of medium hit with this song, baby, can you dig your man? And he's like, well, it's just part of being an artist. Like, I guess like, I don't want to give it up because I don't want to give up the fame. And then the world is like, everything's canceled so he's like okay yeah and, he, and I guess he needed he needed to be like shifted he needed a complete paradigm shift because right. i bet if there was no you know the super flu he never changes L- you know what oh, larry no. larry made the most out of this apocalypse yeah i think yeah. so yeah he, really he was did. really making his sourdough breads and yeah, he, podcasts, yeah, he, was, so. he started his own podcast <laughs> and he made really good sourdough bread yeah. <laughs> He made a podcast about Sour. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> there we go. There we yeah, go. Yeah, no, that's a great point, David. He did. He, he needed. I guess some people they need that catalyzing event for them to feel the need to change yeah. in some way, right? It's almost like they they need to be shaken out of their stupor. They need to mm-hmm. be woken up. Right? And I mean, more in my very recent history, not to put any spoilers on it, but I have recently had one of those catastrophic paradigm shifts right where it's now a chance for me to be like okay i can be sad <laughs> for a little bit but now i have to right see yeah, what, yeah, what yeah. can happen so. yeah mm. yeah yeah so yeah that's true yeah and and who knows what it can like what new path is available to you now because you actually have to look for them well i'm not going to vegas that's just one thing for sure <laughs> yeah, okay good, yeah, good. yeah you'll never get out yeah go no. to go to <laughs> the new cool get yeah you. that's so good i love that insight onto larry david and and billy like that's that's so because i i ended up really like he, he larry had the jesse pinkman arc for me oh of yes. course <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. like you he, hate him so much I, oh my god he's less inept than jesse is at the beginning of breaking bad but by the end he's like the hero yeah in it in like he's got a he's probably the most heroic Stu is but larry is going to his death and i'm Stu phases his death a bit too but he mm. gets tom cullen out of it whereas larry's like about to go to the most gruesome one of the most gruesome deaths you can imagine without losing his integrity or nob- nobility yeah or and he has a stance chance. yeah you know yeah he stands up he the stands up <laughs> I do love that it's the the stand. Um, and then the only other, like, last... Uh, I loved that in his relationship with Joe, the thing that connected them was music. Yeah. And the guitar, oh, yeah. right? Because my mm. take on all of these things is one of those deeper level human connections is music. Art in general, but especially music. Like, Dave and I have talked about how, you know, I've been at concerts with thousands of strangers, and you, you, the right song comes on, you put your arms around each other, right? Or, like... I bring up Oasis not accidentally like Wonderwall comes on at a party and yeah. everyone's everyone is singing even if you hate Wonderwall you're still you singing. Can't, still singing Wonderwall you can't yeah. help but enjoy the fact that everyone around you is happy in unison feeling connected to each you other you have to be a particularly miserable person if you still don't like the song <laughs> yeah exactly and it. like it's it's just put so well in the book how Joe <laughs> essentially distrusts and hates Larry until he can play guitar Right? Yeah, and, and then, then he's like, and then, "Oh, no, this is nice." Yeah, there's something here, maybe. So you keep you keep calling him Joe, even though he 
regains his voice and he's like, my name's Leo Rockaway. Well, he's Joe at that time. At that time, okay. Right? So that's why. So I call him Leo when he's Leo. And then, I mean, but just more, mostly to keep in my mind. The chronology. The, yeah. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. I, f- I totally forgot about Joe and Leo. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I forgot about, it's such a big book. Like, it's so big because <laughs> there's, there's whole parts that I was I just know. like, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do like that uh, with Larry, you know, because he's kind of famous with Baby Kenny Digger Man. Once everything shuts down, he doesn't uh, sing it. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't tell people that he was the artist. The only time it's referenced post-apocalypse, Tom Cullen is singing it, and the only person around him is Nick, who can't see, hear, who can't hear it anyway. So it's like, you know, Larry's contribution to what he thought was like his biggest contribution was so meaningless <laughs> right after yeah. that yeah like, like, you know he, he thinks this is the big thing that he's going to do in his life mm-hmm. and it ends up not even being the beginning of the big things that yeah he does it's a non-event life. but it is still there for when he needs an authentic human connection to a kid yeah the music which is, which right. is yeah but yeah. he doesn't play him baby can you do no. your man no. he plays other classics right. and yeah. hymns yeah. and that's a good point stuff mm-hmm. i only have a scattering of notes on like nick glenn even Abigail, Lucy, Tom. So whatever of those you want to riff on. I want to talk about how Nick was my favorite. Oh, okay. I like Nick. I like that he was resourceful. The character is deaf and mute, as described in the book. So he can't speak, can't hear. He knows a lot of shorthand miming. He writes out stuff. He's he's very uh, intelligent and thoughtful. And because he can only listen you know by by reading lips he isn't distracted by like a lot of the bullshit and like it's like a little representation of action speaking louder than words because right. yeah, someone yeah, yeah. can be saying something and and nick is like okay but i don't have to hear the words i can see your body language mm. i can see your facial expressions i can see everything what a great and i can point. see yeah. what you're what you mean without having to be distracted by the words and then he like he ends up unfortunately we lose him in the, the house explosion in boulder yeah, mm-hmm. and it's funny that again he's there for like these significant moments that he can't appreciate because Tom is singing "Baby Can You Digger Man." He can't hear that. He's never heard that. <laughs> when Harold sets up the bomb, he yeah. says something into the walkie-talkie that the only person in the house is Nick Andrews holding the bomb. So Harold's big grand message of like this, uh, his final "fuck right. you" is yeah. completely lost on a person who can't uh, hear it anyway. So he's just so like, sad. "This Mike, this." This is a walkie-talkie explode. Like, actually, now that you bring it up, some of Stephen King's descriptions of what's going on through Nick's perspective are so interesting and unique because he relies so heavily on his vision yeah. to see what's going so on. It's all describing, yeah, yeah. I, which, I like. There's which a little is just difference. Another sign of of the mastery mm-hmm. that Stephen King well, has I, over the English language, where he he can he can move between he can give you the perspective of a character who has never heard or said anything and it's really interesting because when he's talking when he's in the prison so he kind of gets deputized and he's carrying up once <laughs> right, everyone's yeah. getting sick and these like prisoners are, are yelling at him and hurling invectives at him and they, when the guy was narrating it it would like have the words and then he would just cut off mid-word and be like and nick turned around so he couldn't see their lips moving anymore so it'd just <laughs> be like completely shut off yeah, yeah. and that wow was yeah that's so interesting so how cool would affect that. and then he had to he had to revamp his whole life by meeting Tom Cullen, who doesn't know how to read, who is, uh, you know, mentally challenged and just like can't spell, can't read. 
And so he can't like he has no way to communicate with this guy who's a match made in limbo, hey? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you know, he has to he has to work around it and, and it's just a testament to his resourcefulness that he can't even communicate with like he, mm. he can only write and the person he's talking to cannot read it. Right. And the person who's he can talk to can only talk and he can't hear it. So mm-hmm. it's like a He's very resourceful. Yeah. So I really like probably it. the most resourceful. I was sad to see him go. But then he turns into like a Obi-Wan figure for Tom Cullen. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But again, like his character, I love, I, I think, I, I mean, it was sad, but I think it was a great decision to have him die. Like the, yeah, the way so. that Stephen King can just gut punch you with the Game of Thrones style of having a main character die, I think is, it's like the one of the boldest things you can do as an author yeah. or as a writer of a story is to have one of your beloved main characters be killed well, because you he, don't come back, right? No. Like, and, and he writes out, like the whole way when they're introducing stuff that he introduces not the main characters he introduces everybody right with, yeah I'd say equal weight yeah and then they all fall away and you think like okay these people lasted for longer and they can still like die suddenly and yeah. like the, you kind of go for a long time in between like the populace dying and then like random other people you meet and you think like okay Nick's gonna be safe but he like saves it for the like start a third act yeah and when it's uh, curtains for Nick mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah, I liked his character a lot too, but you know, he kind of uh, like literally dies out, you know, which which doesn't give him the same kind of presence, I think throughout the whole story that like Larry and Stu have. Yeah, and like he couldn't have been the example in Vegas for ex- like, you know, he couldn't have been like if you if you had Larry die in the explosion and Nick went on the thing, the quest, Nick's not going to be the one yeah. reaching the crowd yeah, they're right just yeah, yeah like so again it's mm-hmm. all like he's Built there in. to be there until his plot is done and then mm-hmm. Stephen King's like okay you're done yeah, now yeah. see you later I think a lot of the stuff that he does with Mama Abigail is some of my favorite parts of this book where he does something really interesting he makes goodness fragile he makes the light weak so weak right yeah aged yeah. right Barely or deaf able, and mute. D- yeah, yeah. Barely able right. to function. Like, just holding on to a thread. And yet, then he walks you through the strength of this woman throughout her life. And it's like, he's pointing to goodness and he's saying, it looks weak from the outside. Oh, uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I think, like, the metaphor here, maybe my favorite metaphor of this whole book, is things aren't as they appear. Hmm. Right. And because flag is charming yeah. and suave and strong. Yeah. And Harold is and intellectual and in your face. And oh, you don't know this. I know this. And they're insecure as fuck. Right. Yeah. And Abigail is completely at peace and filled with strength and leads this entire group of people into reestablishing some form of civilization instead of like a gang, you know, warfare. Right. Yeah. And, and yet this whole time you get this sinking feeling in your gut that Mm. how is she possibly going to stand up against Mm -hmm. all of that? Yeah. When it's, when it's mother Abigail versus Randall flag, you're like, I know what my money's on. Yeah. Yeah, Like safe money's on. What's uh, what's Vegas got right. I got this. (laughs) Everything. It's such a beautiful metaphor Right. For yeah, that's what, so true. What goodness is, right? I think mm. it's the slow obedience in the right direction. Oh, that's such a good point because I mean all of the characters care for Mother Abigail deeply, but there does seem to be a, an extra connection she has with Nick. Yeah. And I think it mm-hmm. is because she senses his 
Well, and Tom, not as much with Tom, but Tom also would fit this bill, right? Like Tom has a, a mental challenge, a deficiency that on the outside makes him weaker than everybody else. And yet he's also one of the heroes for us as the reader, right? And like Nick's deaf muteness as a disability and Mother Abigail being older and weaker and frail, I think, yeah, there, there's like a kindredness there that yeah. she senses with him. And it's a reality, right? It's like, oh, we're all broken, mm. right? Like, yeah. Oh, we recognize our brokenness and we don't condemn it. We celebrate it. Right. We and, live with and it. And you think of some of the people that you might admire the most in your life and how none of them exactly, I would say in my life, aren't like immediately on the surface like someone who you would assume you would worship. Like the little the little heroic things people can do of goodness for each other don't always come from like the supermodels, right? No, or like the, no. the the people who might be forefront in our culture exactly it's often like the people in the trades right like the the plumber who does you a kindness short notice or the hand or or the handyman who's polite or Mm -hmm. or the person who notices that a waitress is having a bad day right and maybe she's really awful to them but gives her gives her a good tip anyway Mm -hmm. here's a perfect example of this the the guy at the at the mechanic shop today the dealership who when I was paying for the new battery I had to buy today, comes up to me unprompted and r- lets me know that there's a five-year warranty on this battery. Like he comes across, he doesn't have to tell me this. I mean, it's good customer service, but it's like, it's just like that little, that little extra people will do maybe to, to help you out. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. You know, it's really nice and, and nice feels not like the right word, but it's, it is kind of the right. Like it's just looking out for each other in a way. And, and I think, yeah, mother Abigail sees that in Nick. So, mm-hmm. That could be a good stand-up broom into Mother Abigail. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> Mother Abigail, the world's or the oldest woman in yeah. America. I mean, 108 years old. I loved everything about her, but I think I enjoyed the story, like the vignettes of her youth. Yes, a lot. Yes, and they're like and the number of husbands that died. Yeah, and and um, one of the most Stephen King esque Stephen King horror moments is like the scene where all the like the she's yes. molested by all those white fucks oh, back God. in the day. The yeah. Oh right. Oh yes, right? you're right. Yeah. There's like a few of them. Like that just it reminded me so much of it and even like Ace in Stand by Me. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. just the the psychopathic bully and the, and the and the fueled by hate bully. Like I don't know if anyone's ever done that better than Stephen King. No. Yeah, that Mother Abigail's youth and growing up was probably one of the hardest parts Mm -hmm. to read when they talked about her family, just because of, you know, the very real injustices that black people and people of color are facing in the States. And, and that was again, one of the times when they used the N word so much and it was like period appropriate because it was this segregation South and yeah, yeah, super racist, but there was no getting away from it in an audio book where I couldn't just be like, flip, 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 flip. It's like, no, he's just going to keep saying this word and keep going. And yeah, she she went through a lot in her youth, and I think my favorite scene of her was just her going to get the chickens. Yeah, in the Pentagon, she's just and like, she's "Well, just I'm old, old yeah. and it just it's but down I, the road, but, but I'm they're gonna, gonna come <laughs> and they're gonna need food." And, and she's like, really "I gotta chicken. make chickens, I gotta make pie, I gotta yeah. do it all." And she's like, "Damn, okay." <laughs> and was that when Flag attacked her? Or That's the when yeah, did? she gets attacked yeah. by the weasels. Oh, the weasels. That's right. As, Which are Flag? They're like yeah. avatars of Flag or something, or yeah, and beats them. And she beats him. Yeah. Yeah. I just love her 
whole attitude towards life, which is the I think the attitude of a person who's gone through a lot and taken the right lessons along the way. And it's basically like, yeah, things happen. Yeah, she knew how to transfer her pain and the terrible things that happened to her into strength. Like transmute it. I, yeah. I, I, I like yeah. the... Um, like use it yeah. as fuel to be better. Exactly. To a fire, every log is fuel. Like, the, I love this idea of... It's actually an, an alchemist idea, right? The ancient alchemists, everyone was, like laughs about them. Like, oh, they were trying to turn lead into gold. Well that's a metaphor like they weren't actually trying to turn lead into gold they were they, using, they weren't no they oh. were using it as a metaphor i thought it was like kind of trying to do that no no they that was what they were telling people they were doing oh, okay. because it wasn't orthodox christianity what oh, they were I talking see. about Got it. right and you don't um, want to get burnt at the then you don't want to get burnt at the at, at the or state <laughs> i bet you they're like okay we'll just say we're doing it as a metaphor but like secretly you know we'll work on it <laughs> well maybe. if it happens to turn to gold i won't if, throw it yeah. away <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, if we get here and there's yeah. gold at the oh, yeah, end of it, yeah. 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 Right. But anyway, yeah, okay. So <laughs> yeah, the metaphor being that you take something va- without value mm-hmm. or or even negative, right? And you transform it, and and, that, and that's what you mm-hmm. need to. And like the the theory behind it is that what's that's what you have to do with experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is like the Stoic Marcus Aurelius level. It's like, okay, I can't control other people. Mm-hmm. I can't control how they treat me. I can't control anything. All I can control is how I react. Mm-hmm. Right what i am you have power over your own mind not external circumstance know this and you will find strength mm-hmm. right and that's that's the um that's the marcus aurelius kind of famous line. right 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 and i feel like she embodies that right? right like she takes these really horrible experiences that have to her losing she didn't she lose almost all of her children she lost too? children she lost husbands she lost i mean well everyone lost she didn't everything lose. right and she's but there untimely and, losses and it seemed like and now i know that like i was not raised to like I, I haven't read the bible i know that you had more of a religious upbringing than i did but she seemed like she was a mishmash of all of the people that god put on trial like you know she had yeah. trials like job and she was super old and you know she had to go to the wilderness and <laughs> yeah. and pray yeah. so she, she can't she 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 seemed like she was obviously overtly she's the most religious. Yes, she's yes. talking about how like everything is well, God's and will, she's and she's like the person bringing everyone in in a kind of like Noah's Ark. Yeah, yeah. Metaphor, she's right? every so. book of the Bible, <laughs> yeah. just all smushed into Moses one old lady him out of Egypt <laughs> into the <laughs> yeah. land. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... name a prophet she wasn't. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like she is all of these kind of biblical motifs. She's an archetype for, for yeah. sure, and I really like it. I I thought it was like a very uh, honoring representation of that kind of person. Mm-hmm. But I think we we've met people that people in our family that exemplify elements of that. Sure, but they like, maybe not as pure as her. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but she is like a distill a distillation of all the all, all the, the all the points, yeah. and yeah, there's the hero with a thousand faces, and she's the spiritual guide with a thousand yeah, faces, yeah, 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 all yeah, in yeah, one, yeah. <laughs> and played by Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, oh, yeah, which true. will be great. And she also like, I'm not particularly, and, and this was this was why I found it impressive because I'm generally not positively disposed to faith. As yeah. a concept. Yeah. Right? Not as uh, your sister. David. No. Yes. <laughs> or as I a Michael. I got you. Yes. But with a George Michael song. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> I find I, I you know, in my in my 
hard-nosed, sober moments. I'm like, I think it's the most overrated of the virtues. But somehow she makes it kind of cool in this book. Like, yeah. whatever turning of the dials she does for Faith, the concept in this book kind of worked for me. I was like, if it was always this, I guess I could probably be less annoyed by it, right? True. Yeah. She just somehow, like, I think that's the like- four of you have to go. And I don't know why. I'm sorry. Like, I, I think it's because she wasn't like, she wasn't dogmatic or like full of conviction in her faith. She was exactly. just like, I don't know. God just said, so I guess do it. Yeah, they say humble faith, right? Yeah. And and I think yeah. she actually portrayed that. She, well, that's what I mean. Like, I feel like Stephen King steel manned it. Yeah, definitely. Right? Like, this is what real faith looks like. Well, and then again, she's also, you know, a deus ex machina device because she goes mm. away for so long the committee gets together their meeting which allows harold to like decide where the plot is and the only right. reason they don't all blow up is because she comes back right and they all leave the house yeah, yeah right yeah. so like she's every everybody in this book is a chess piece yeah and you know he he took her off the board for a while and then he brought her back <laughs> right at the right time that it would save a lot yeah, of people but yeah. not everyone and yeah. <laughs> well, Billy, I don't know if you remember, but we recorded our uh, episode in Nothing to Fear on Wreck the other day. And I mm-hmm. had to say a couple times because Wreck's a found footage. So it's supposed to be like a little bit realistic. But I kept, there were a few times I was like, well, it is still a movie. That's true. <laughs> right? It is like, still right. a book. It is still a book. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Still a book. <laughs> if right. all of the main characters died in the house, like they probably <laughs> would have in real life with that bomb. We're like, well, okay, I guess we'll follow Harold down the rest of the book. Yeah, it'd be like ending the book with a big nuclear explosion. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, Stephen King is a fun guy with that mushroom cloud. Uh, that's a stretch. Anyway. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Radiated. <laughs> Any uh, other thoughts on Abigail? I just loved her. How I felt about reading about her. I liked how I felt about that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked her old folksy wisdom. She was like, she's so old. She's like, I'm not putting up with anybody's bullshit anymore. And Reminds me a little bit of my grandma. Actually. Also, <laughs> yeah, very much. It's so. like, I'm not going to put up with your bullshit, but also have some pie. And yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, sweet and sour with her, it's sour and sweet. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The very last note I have with the heroes is Tom's line, love doesn't grow well in a place where there is fear. I love Tom. Mm, I mean, Tom great is great. Line. But he's there's nothing hidden about him to talk about exactly. Like all of his heroism is on the surface, mm-hmm. right? Like, because the, he's so earnest. Yeah. Because I mean, because he can't not be. I think that that's the beauty of what people like Stephen King or David Foster Wallace draw out of their heroes. It's like, well, actually, the greatest virtue is earnestness. Well, and I like that. That's his superpower. Is that he's so everything is on the surface that people can't the flag can't see him. they can't yeah. see him like it's somebody who's like so hiding in plain sight that you you are actually invisible or somebody without an agenda you're like but what is your agenda and like they can't fathom that the agenda is nothing it's what he's saying you're always parsing a deeper meaning and when tom is like well here's here it is and you're just like i what yeah what do i yeah. do from here and i i like the way that he was narrated Again, in the audiobook, he had a funny way of speaking, which, you know, was a, as a result of his cognitive delay and just the way he spelled everything M O O N. And then that's where I'm going. The one, <laughs> the one time it got is like, come back when the moon is full. And he's like, M O O N, that spells moon. You're like, yes. yes. <laughs> that's yeah, right. right. Yeah. You got yeah. one. The person playing Tom in the show is, a, is someone I don't know. So I'm really excited to... Did you watch Orange is the New Black? No. Oh. He was a pretty 
bad prison guard in ah, Orange okay. is the New New Black. So it'll be good to um, see him in a different way. But it'll be interesting because he's like he's a big guy. Like he's oh, six right. foot five, I think, and he looks like he's three three hundred plus pounds. Like he's right. a huge dude for that role. So I, I, it'll be interesting to see how he. Because Tom Cullen is like basically this gentle giant yes. character, yeah. right? Yeah. We've seen. Speaking of, he's um, like everywhere bizarre or like counterintuitive castings. Uh, the guy who plays Raj in Big Bang Theory is in a Netflix movie called or show called Criminal, and he's a serial killer. Oh, interesting! So, oh. Like ah. that juxtaposition is going to be interesting. Uh, that's but, weird, yeah. but I like to see an actor with range. Yeah, you know, yeah. Who could, who could, like Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, yeah. Diamond start as coal. That yeah. was a way of uh, the. That point of um, things growing. Not I like just, that. Yeah. Know, that's yeah. also one yeah, of our like... episode titles. Also, shout out to one of our fans who informed us that when McConaughey shifted into his more serious roles, it was called the McConaissance. The McConaissance, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, you knew this. I knew about the McConaissance, okay. yeah. <laughs> we, we David didn't. and I were very uncomfortable. <laughs> I, uh, I listened to probably too many podcasts. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, like, I love the McConaissance. Well, it'll help, it'll survive, it'll help you survive an apocalypse. <laughs> I hope so. I'll write a journal about it. There you go. All right. Three characters left. Although I, I actually didn't make any notes on Lloyd. So if there's anything you want to say about Lloyd, but I, I found him to be very boilerplate. Lloyd Henry, yeah, he's the sort of right-hand man of the dark man. And he is basically just a yes man. He gets He's a petty criminal. He's been second string to the poker. Uh, yeah, pokerized. Pokerized. And he just go, goes along with it because... He doesn't know what else to do. He can't think for himself, and then he winds up in jail for it. And the, the dark man like flirt, like dabbles him. in cannibalism. Not really for well, him, but he'll try. He was he was hungry. <laughs> yeah, you know, he was starving. He like ate a rat. He I saved guess, his food. I guess then... I guess if there's anything to glean out of his storyline, it's Lloyd just being like loyalty past the point of sanity or common sense past rationality past rationality yeah. i actually see lloyd as kind of another example i think it's funny because you see i see a lot of insecurity in all the villains oh yeah right? and, and in lloyd's case he can't define himself apart from someone else i love this in stephen king yeah. I, I there's a i want to talk so bad about it because there's this great there's a great scene in it where one of the bullies gets his comeuppance from pennywise and this bully has been so sadistic right and then he just becomes the most pathetic thing you've ever seen when confronted with a deeper evil right right and, and this is a very deep stephen king line of like there's always a deeper evil so like what are you going to be in the meantime the guy who plays this bully in it also is is the actor who's going to be playing harold in oh, the stand so that's so it's very, so meta in that way actually oh, too interesting. yeah 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 this no, guy I like named Owen Teague. so anyway yeah that's such a good point like lloyd is He's like this kind of insecure pushover. Yeah, and needs to follow a strong man. It seems like he could have been, like he seems like he's a dark reflection of Larry. If he had gone to Mother Abigail, he might have got the redemptive arc. But he, like, I think him and Larry started in a very similar place. Mm -hmm. And one got redeemed and one got, you know, punished. It says a lot about choices, right? Like Mm -hmm. who you surround yourself with, the kind of people you spend your time with. But also kind of luck. Yeah, yeah, like it was kind of bad luck that he was around Flag, just mm-hmm. geographically, and he felt obligated to Flag because that Flag was the one who got him out of prison. Got him out yeah. of prison. He was locked inside this prison with everyone around him dead, no choice but to starve to death. And Flag was like, "Well, come hang out with me, and then I'll let you out." He's like, "Well, I don't want to die, so mm-hmm. sure." True. Well, Good and point. I mean, 
that's kind of um, that. There's an element of Greek tragedy in Lloyd because of that. The fatal flaw in the hero is the um, the the like Achilles' heel, right? Yeah, like the right. the the, the, the yeah. fa- there's a there's a hero but has a fatal flaw, and and clearly Lloyd's is like misplaced loyalty. Right, yeah. like there's a few, uh, there's uh, some of my favorite scenes in Las Vegas in the last third of the book are, are Lloyd kind of like realizing that everyone is right yeah. when they're saying that flag is not worth following anymore, and he's just like, ah, damn it, <laughs> yeah, no, but, but he, like, but he's in too deep. He's, he's trying, trying to keep. Right. <laughs> he, he's pot committed. <laughs> yeah, and, good point. That's a good Las Vegas joke, David. And pot, and then and then there is that kind of internal dialogue. It's like, well, with flag, I'm second dog. Mm-hmm. Anywhere else. None of these other people are going to have me no, be the yeah. leader. No, yeah, exactly. So this is the only place I can actually have status. And that's what's important to him, I mm-hmm. think. And that's status. what, exactly to your point, Billy, that is what Larry is able to transcend. Mm-hmm. Larry doesn't need the status anymore yeah. like he did. Which he did need the status Exactly, before. yeah. So that's such a good comparison. Uh, of all the people in Vegas, I mean, all the like nameless extras, <laughs> right? they got lost. But of all the people who you know died in the Vegas explosion, I think I felt the worst for Lloyd because he was starting to have like a, <laughs> right. a revelation, be like, ah, you should maybe leave. Yeah. And uh, then, yeah. I felt worse for Larry and Ralph. Okay, fine. <laughs> but yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah, fuck those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stupid Larry. Stupid um, feather in your hat, Ralph. Get out of here. <laughs> so I don't think there's a ton to talk about because even though she's really important in the book, Nadine is kind of a – she's not that interesting. No. She's also going to be played by Amber Heard. Yeah. In, in oh. My note I made on her is that um, she she needs things to happen for a reason, Right. Like all of the shit yep. needs to be for something. So she reminded me of the type of person or the type of psychology that finds the most intolerable reason for anything is no reason, randomness, whatever. Right. She, right? It can't be random. It yeah. has to be for a purpose. The the uh, the entropy of the void is no good of an explanation <laughs> for her, and so she'll attribute incorrect or self motivated reasons rather than no reason, and be able to live with that. And the I guess obvious tragic irony in that is that her storyline is ultimately pointless and has no reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. she, yeah. She thinks she's saving herself. She's, you know, she's still a virgin. She's in her thirties. She's saving herself for someone. She thinks it's going to be Larry. He turns her down. So she's like, well, it's not, if it's not Larry, then it's the dark man. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. it's a big jump, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And okay. then she, so although she, we know where she lands on the is butt God. sex virginity outside of that <laughs> That's debate. True. That's true. <laughs> True. Oh god. Those yeah. scenes are so uncomfortable to that read. That was okay, we can talk her about Harold after, but like, oh my god, talk about your masturbatory fantasies. Yeah. Ugh. But like not even. Not even, like, no, like, like it's like the most deranged like masturbatory fantasies. Yeah. Yeah. But she she ultimately ends up as nothing. She gets impregnated by Randall Flag, loses her entire mind, and then yells at him enough so doesn't she jump out the window at the end well no she flag throws her that's right that's right and then the most fucked up thing there is that she feels like that's what she wanted right like she's there's like a like a i got the better of you flag because you killed me and that's it (laughs) it's like holy shit so much tragedy in one person in this book. this was like nadine was where it started to lose its steam here's nadine she's building up to this thing she's she's gonna be you know, carrying the dark man's baby and then, oh, bye, Nadine. Oh, okay. I guess we're done with her. <laughs> it's just, that was where it started to be like, oh, maybe he didn't know what to do with her fully. It was just like, yeah. I guess we'll throw her out mm-hmm. the window. 
But I mean, so this is actually something David and I have talked about on this podcast before, how there seems to be a not small portion of people in the world that will take a bad reason over no reason. Even, mm. Like like for why something happened, right? Yeah. Like they'd rather blame an innocent person than have it just be an accident. They Like right. attaching your psychology to a particular thing that you can find meaningful in some way, as opposed to like this person developed this disease and there's no good reason and they're gone. And like, we have to live with this now. Right. As opposed to like, this person didn't come up with this pharmaceutical fast enough. Or like, this doctor fucked up. Or like, it's like finding that reason for that thing, terrible like thing. Like the that chaos yeah. of the universe needing yeah. to have a person to pin it on. Exactly. When it's just, the universe doesn't care about you. Or at least an entity. Like, or at least like, yeah. a, this is for something better in the future. Mm. And I would just say like, personally, part of my maturing has been to think about how something like sometimes bad things happen and it's nobody's fault and I just have to deal with it. It's not for a deeper reason. It's just like, fuck, <laughs> you know, sometimes my battery in my car dies Yeah, and it's nobody's fault. If it's anybody's fault, it's mine, but I'm not even going to blame myself because batteries die. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So rather than moan about it and find, find somebody else's ear to like, listen to my complaining, it's like, okay, well, uh, this is the situation I'm in. I got to solve this problem and move on because there's more to life beyond this problem. Yeah. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And Nadine seems to lack that in some way. Nadine seems to be like the type of person who would, no matter what the outcome, if something in her life was a good outcome, she would find a random mundane thing to be like, oh, you know, if my shoelace hadn't been untied, yeah, I would right. have arrived yeah, yeah. five seconds yeah, earlier yeah. and missed it. meaning to anything. And she could attribute, yeah, you know, it's like, oh man, you know, if I, if I had crossed the street one minute earlier, I would have been in this situation when a bad thing happened so i must have must have been divine intervention it's just like no you just crossed the street and you got yeah, lucky she's, like, she's one of those everything happens for a reason people yeah. but like <laughs> but nothing if, happens for her for a reason. if you don't take that at the mundane level of like well physically that's true <laughs> uh but like everything happens for a special preordained me particularly it's like my a real, like, this is self in mind destiny yeah well, she's got that whole problem, the delusion that David Foster Wallace talks about, right? Which is the, everything's in front of me, everything's about yeah. me, it's The whole mine. world is just around my experience. Yeah. Yeah. She's, in her head, she is the protagonist of The Stand. Yes. Like, <laughs> The Stand is about her, Nadine, the journey of Nadine. She sees herself almost as a Marian figure, right? Yeah. At the end, and that's why she, she's like, she's the dark Mary, but she's still, you know, the mother of God. If, she, if Nadine could have read The Stand... She would have seen all the other people who died horribly and maybe have had more perspective on the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It just, it, that was so sad to me. Yeah. Was, she was, was like a tragic thing. And she, you know, she invested all of her life in, in Joe, Leo. Like, you know, she found him and raised and not raised him, but like she, her background was working with yeah. kids who had special needs. And so she clung to that. And as soon as, you know, Leo, and Larry connected over the guitar. It was like, we don't need you anymore, Nadine mom. Yeah. Even in, in Boulder, there's Nadine mom and Lucy mom, mm -hmm. who are the moms for Leo. And Lucy has all of the nurturing capacities that Nadine lacks. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, he doesn't need me anymore. Therefore, I'm not needed. Mm -hmm. So, hi, Harold. Well, and, <laughs> yeah. and 
this just occurred to me now. I can't believe it because this is something else Dave and I have talked about lots. Here's the fancy $5 word that Billy's mom loves. Not ostensibly. (laughs) But it's still fun. (laughs) So like Nadine is motivated by a teleological goal. Wow, right? that's like a $10 word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, nine fitty. <laughs> um, three fitty, three she's, fitty. She's totally committed to the idea that everything will be worth it once she gets to flag. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? The, the everything. Any means yeah. is fine because the like, ends are great. The, the end is, and, and what do we find when she gets to flag? Wow. This is disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> this is well, not this what is I really wanted. this is really what we've talked about in terms of loving the process instead of the exactly. goal. Exactly. all Nadine cares about is the goal. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. All she yeah. cares about is, and it's even how she treats her virginity. And she's willing to do anything to get there. Yeah. Which doubles the tragedy. But right? but at the but at the end of the day, the goal doesn't give her anything that she thought it would. No. And she used, used all that time where she could have been enjoying the process, Mm -hmm. longing (laughs) for that goal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, in, uh, I mean, we brought up David Foster Wallace a couple times. In his sense, she dies, she dies many deaths before Before her final one. She's just not beautiful enough. She's not good enough for Flag. She's not a good enough mother for Leo. She can't learn from things like Lucy does. She just compares herself to Lucy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's, you know, if you worship beauty, you'll die a thousand deaths before your final one. If you worship how smart you are, you'll never, you'll feel like a fraud in front of everyone. If if you worship power, you'll always be wondering who's going to take it from you. Yeah, and so uh, Nadine is worshiping all of these things that make her die all of these internal deaths. And then, you know. Pretty insightful. her, Her last one. Which is so sad, you know? So even though I didn't like her, I, I felt pity for her in a way, mm-hmm. you know? That I think is really masterful of a storyteller to be able to make us feel pity for our villains. It, it kind of makes me want to give her death more meaning. Like I'm trying to think in my mind, <laughs> right, I'm like, yeah. well, maybe this was the point where Randall Flagg realized that his power wasn't complete. And it's just like, no, this is what she wanted. Like yeah. she wanted her death to mean something, and it was just random chaos. Yeah, it mm. didn't, didn't matter. Mm. And even sadder because it meant a baby was gonna die too. Yeah, yeah that was so. Yeah. I actually consider Harold to be the best villain in the book more than Flagg. So I was like, do you want to talk about Flag before Harold? I think Randall Flag. There's not much to like, talk about him yeah. other than he's like, like an he's, agent he's, of chaos. He's we more, need to point out he's the villain, but he's other than a that, symbol. Yeah, more he's than what a people character. rally around. He doesn't like. Does he have character development? Not well, really. I, I think that he. I mean, he learns how to fly for a bit. Well, yeah. If there's anything insightful to say about him, he does seem to know how to use propaganda. That's true. Right? Like That's he, true. he he is. He's kind of the evil Glenn Bateman. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like Glenn Bateman knows he how to. He understands society mm-hmm. pretty well. Which is interesting because yeah. when he has that scene with Glenn Bateman in the prison, yeah. Glenn is not swallowing any of his yeah. shit. And he, he sees right through he him. He tears yeah. him down and like actually makes Randolph like lose control probably for like the first time in front of Lloyd. Right. You know, when he's like, shoot him. And, and, and Glenn's like, well, why don't you kill me if you want me dead yeah, somewhere? Yeah. He's like, just kill him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Glenn talks to. Uh, to flag in a like how I feel like I feel like I would have been able to handle Goebbels, you know? Right, right. There we go. Speed talk. There we go. Yeah. Woo. I ain't scared of him. He's dead. And I don't even feel bad about it. You know what? I, I am willing to come out against the Nazis full stop, and I don't care who knows. So, yeah, yeah. I think a bold position yeah, to take. Well, you know, well, if I go to Colorado, it'll be bolder. Oh, <laughs> I bet you didn't think I could make that joke I, twice. I saw it. I didn't see it coming. Bet you didn't think was. I could make that joke Rolling twice. Down the hill. 
I'm just a sissy fist. <laughs> yeah, so Flag is um he's a symbol. You're right. And because he survives, and he's obviously in other books. I don't know, like I just I he's, found him the least compelling he's villain. Just, he's just the embodiment he's, he's of not a, chaos a villain. He, he, right. Yeah, he's a force. Right. He's a manifestation. So how do you think they... they okay, make a prediction then. How will they effectively portray him? Because it's Alexander Skarsgård in the show. How are they going to effectively portray him in the show? As a, hopefully, it's just not not even so much as a person, but as a force or an idea. I hope he's like very slimy. Because yeah. he came across as very like overly yeah, smile genial. Like he's always right. smiling. He's always... You know, he's always, he's, oh, he's always got a big smile. He's always sounds so friendly. And you're just like, but also he will rip your throat like out. Kind of bureaucratic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I don't, I mean, he was, yeah, he's, he was a Loki. He was a trickster god. He was a malevolent. Oh, but like 10% force. more evil. Yeah. A malevolent force. Yeah. He's definitely a malevolent force. He's real bad. He's very bad. <laughs> Randall Flagg equals bad. Yeah. So there insightful. That's what you come yeah, to this podcast for. <laughs> I'm going to plant a flag in that one. For, 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 for everyone. <laughs> you know how I knew he was bad? Randall is the name of the villain in Monsters, Inc. <laughs> yep. Steve Buscemi played th- uh, the voice of Randall in Monsters, Inc. Yep. Steve Buscemi you got it. also Looks weird. is in um, Pulp Fiction, movie we used to we did yes. originally on this podcast. Pulp Fiction? Isn't he in Reservoir Dogs? He, he's he's in, both. in both. He's the waiter in Pulp Fiction. Oh, yes. Yeah. But we haven't done Reservoir Dogs. Uma Thurman. Oh God. Is in Pulp Fiction. She's in Kill Bill, and Alexander Skarsgård looks a little bit like a young David Carradine. Oh, also, no. Bill in Kill Bill. <laughs> but, so okay, you haven't mentioned Kevin Bacon yet. <laughs> well, you got. I'm trying to sell the steak, not the sizzle. <laughs> okay, okay. So Harold, we're on the we're on the home stretch. There we go, guys. The last. <sighs> I don't like Harold. I don't like Harold either. As in, as in, the character of Harold was written well enough to make me absolutely despise yes. him for about ninety percent of his arc, with a glimmer of hope mm-hmm. that then made me despise him even more. Mm-hmm. He I had the spark of potential that was snuffed out. My favorite, yeah, and like Harold is the person who's given all the right opportunities in life to be good. And chooses not to mm-hmm. because being good is too humbling. Right. Yeah, because he doesn't want to be good. He wants to be revered and is he wants his intellect and other things stroked. Yes. And he wants <laughs> you know yes. he wants people his butt to, hairs. <laughs> he wants people to be like, you know, wow, Harold, you're so smart. And we see a little bit of that. Unfortunately, Harold doesn't get to when Larry is like, man, that Harold guy, he's so great. Like he's mm-hmm. following his clues. Like and I so, wonder if Larry and Harold could have actually been friends during that journey part. If maybe Harold just right. needed that person. Right. But I think Harold got in his own way too much because Larry got to see his like intelligence without, you know, you can tell that when you know for example the big scene with larry trying to get the gas can up and he almost loses his fingers and he's like oh shit and then fran is like well harold just found the like valve and opened it and he was like damn that guy's smart but i, I bet you in that scene harold be like well actually there's a valve over here and i just opens up everything <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they're like okay thanks harold yeah, like yeah, way yeah, to go yeah. <laughs> yeah he's the well actually guy he's definitely and i'm actually yeah and part of his turn, I, I even wrote the page number because I was so affected by it. Page 848, he sees pride and hate as the great virtues. 
Mm-hmm. Like he makes a conscious choice of like, these are actually the best parts about me. Not yeah. the things I need to overcome in this new world. He's like, yeah. right? like yeah. he's rationalizing the but, opposite but, but virtues. Really, if you, I think if you dig underneath, and I think this is what Stephen King shows, is that's what he rationalizes as the best virtues, but it's really just a defense mechanism against his own insecurity oh, because yeah. people like Franny will never exactly like him. Yeah. Oh, he's, so he's got deep insecurities. He's like, yeah, if I am, if I can throw my intelligence in someone's face, they might not like me, but at least they'll know I'm smarter than them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and at that's least, like he's like, and well, that's what I need because I need them to know that because that their opinion actually means more to me than my own of myself. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, well, they might, yeah, they'll they'll know I'm smarter, and, I, and then I can be like, well, I'm smarter than you, so I can be smug and sit here up here on this big old yeah. high horse and he and he infuses all of that with this kind of faux like f-a-u-x geniality with everybody in no. the in the free zone where oh, he's like the, overly kind the and overly, scene where he's like practicing smiling in the yeah. mirror is just like oh yeah. so yeah. that he can so that he can later fuck these people over better right like it's just so it's like a contrived evil plan to overcome his own shortcomings and the thing is that plan of him being overly genial and like having really good ideas and volunteering to help with things is people start liking him for what he provides to society. And the mm-hmm. way he knows, cause he's on, what is he on the cleanup crew? Yeah. Uh, in Boulder where they're trying to get right. rid of the, bo- yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the dead bodies yeah. to, to clean it out. And everyone's like, great job, Hawk. You're doing good. Like, they yeah. give him a nickname. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, got yeah, friends. Yeah. He's one of the boys. And, and he's just like, Oh, I could, I could really see that. And then Nadine shows up and he's like, well, I'm getting a blowjob, <laughs> So it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a metaphor there somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't. Yeah. Harold was the most egregious and I was just like, ah, Mm. but you know why he's very, very compelling is that there is like Stephen King gives us that little bit of like the note I made is Harold, his resentment is wrestling with his potential. So like there is moments of like Harold in some inner monologue being like, maybe I don't have to be this way. Right. Like maybe I can find the way out. Maybe everything I wrote in my journal isn't exactly who I am. Maybe like Franny knows the real me kind of thing. Maybe I should just burn this thing. Yeah. Yeah. But then and this is something we've talked about lots. And I just think I don't I I think it's underemphasized always and needs to be more emphasized is the power of resentment as a as a motivating force. Yes. He resents Stu. He resents Franny for liking Stu over him. He resents Larry. He, yeah, he resents Nadine. Yeah, <laughs> he know, resents like, people in high school who have died from the yes, plague. Yeah. like he's still like he res- those people resents, are mean to me. It's like, he, dude, you won. Like, yeah, fuck you're off. alive. He resents yeah. his dead sister. Right, yeah. like he, he she just, was pretty and had popular, and I yeah. And we've we've talked about like how often resentment is such a powerful force for like this group of people doesn't like the group they claim to be advocating for they just hate the other group yeah right they're just resentful harold isn't uh, trying to make boulder better he's just trying to be seem better than the other people yeah he just wants to win it yeah and to get power everything he does is not is to like is to be helpful but also to be like wow harold you're so helpful like painting the painting the the stuff on the barn yeah and and all the information and like he goes so far he could have like stopped and not put himself in danger but what he wanted was people to be like wow that's so great that you put all that detail in and really what they're like is like why did you go to that like why did you do it so hard like you're trying too hard man Mm -hmm. and i think that made him matter 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 because Mm -hmm. he was like well nobody's recognizing me for how great i am yeah Yeah. 
And this is actually, I think, one of the greatest dangers for anyone, and I've watched it destroy people's lives, is this belief in your innate greatness. And then the world is not agree, the universe is not agreeing with your mm-hmm. identity, right? Like, it's like, like literally like, like you're, you're, well, like okay, it, here, here's the line that Stephen King himself writes about Harold that I think I'm anticipating your point here because I think it'll, this is on page 1219. He had fallen victim to his own protracted adolescence, he had been poisoned <laughs> by his own lethal visions. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, he was just like, they're, they all are mad at me, they all hate me. I'm not going to change my mind, so fuck them. And they're mm-hmm. like, "We actually like you now." Harley's like, "No, no, I, I decided I, that I, I don't still think hate you." Don't you. Like me I still yet. hate you. Yeah, you know, like, and I don't, I don't mean to go too dark here, but I, I think it, it needs to be pointed out is that he reminds me of the type of psychology that would shoot up a school. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, like that's kind of how he's that crafty and able to plan. So he's got like the intelligence to do it well like quote yeah, unquote yeah. well, like to pull it off well, but to also have enough hatred inside of him to want to do it, right? So he's a, he's our resident school shooter yeah. in the stand. I mean, he blows his friends up. or his Yeah, you know. to get back at them, to yeah. prove to them that he was smarter yeah, than it's them not all even, along. It's not even an analogy, really. No. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's something literally, he literally yeah, does, yeah. is uh, the you know Boulder, Colorado version of a school shooting. Yeah. And um, it's very... It's dark. It's dark. Harold's the darkest character it, in this it, book. Yeah, and it's it's all the worst because he has he has so many chances to be redeemed, but he can't get past his own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's bullshit. his own fault. That, right? like, like, like you know, he has a chance to just you know be friends with Franny, but he can't get past the thing that he's like, well, you're a woman and I'm a man, and therefore we should like be together. Hook up. Yeah, 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 and yeah. she's and like, the fact that you won't hook up with me is a statement by you on me that I can't accept and I'm going to hate you. Yeah, it's like, well, I didn't like you anyway. You suck. And it's like, okay, be a little bit more butthurt. <laughs> that reminds me of maybe not the most um, contemporary Nietzsche in line, but uh, Nietzsche has this one line where he says, uh, yes, men and women can be friends, but only if there's a certain level of physical antipathy from the women to the man. <laughs> right, and uh, right. that, that physical antipathy that Franny shows to Harold is actually what prevents the friendship. Yes. Mm-hmm. But True. but again, it's what shows that he doesn't deserve her as a friend. Yeah, in the like first he place. just like just no. hang out, you know, she knew, knew him from school and he was just like he's kind of we had this fantasy of being like, well, I'm it's like the literal scenario where if I'm the last person on earth and Franny's still like, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And then I can't believe I'm saying this, but the very last note I have on Harold is the scene where he tries to kill Nadine. It's after the crash. Oh, right, where he slips. And he's down the embankment, and he takes a couple shots out of the pistol at her. This is evidence of the unsustainability of a guilty conscience and a sideways friendship. Trying to kill Nadine is is a literal instantiation of what is always going to end up on a sideways relationship. Mm-hmm. Or a... Or a guilt, or like doing things out of a guilty conscience. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, how are you possibly going to have anything life-giving, ultimately... When your entire like he flag is using him to just get Nadine to him, how do you yeah. think this is going to end for you, Harold? And yeah, because yeah, he thinks he's going to come into Vegas as the big hero and finally get his moment where he'd be like, "I took down the committee," and like he goes to his grave in his heart, knowing that he was successful and he killed everyone, yeah. like in the committee, because he doesn't That's know true. it only got Nick and 
mm-hmm. Susan or someone. Right. He thinks he pulls it off and he's like, I'm Harold the Great. Oh, oil slick. And yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. down he goes. Well, and I mean, so Harold is this, this is going to be a, maybe a slightly strange comparison, but I, a couple podcasts I've been listening to were talking about Pinocchio as a very archetypal story. So I recently watched Pinocchio again. One of the ideas in it is that, I can't remember his name, something, Honest John, I think the fox. So you know how early in Pinocchio, that fox and that cat are the first evil corruptors of Pinocchio? They find Pinocchio, they give him to the puppet master. Right, yes. But then later there's a scene where the fox and that cat are in a bar and they're meeting the coachman. And the coachman represents an upper stage of evil, right? Like they're like pawn evil. Like they're like dabbling in evil. Whereas the coachman is like, I want to take these boys to Pleasure Island to turn them into donkeys and then sell them. Yeah. Right. Like I'm actually in the slave trade and you two just like find puppeteers, new employees. Yeah. Yeah. Who the fuck are you? Right. Yeah. Like he's the coachman is upper stage evil. And that's what Harold doesn't really realize is that he's not upper stage evil. No, he thinks he's like in this weird middle ground. Yeah. But he thinks he's like, but thinks he's like, and there's that's like the Fox is very confronted by the fact that the coachman is way more competent than he is. Right. Flag is way more competent than Harold. So Harold's torn in this world that he's created for himself. Right. And so I don't know. I just, I, I loved that he, like, obviously, he's going to try and kill Nadine. Yeah. It's unsustainable. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Cause again, she's, she doesn't even, like, she doesn't try to help him. And she's just like, I have to go. And he's like, ah, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot you. Like, cause I don't know how to solve problems. But isn't that, yeah. <laughs> isn't that like the, the end of his arc? The, inevitable end of his arc right is that yeah and then do the wolves get him or does he starve he shoots himself oh that's right right because they have that long scene where he writes and he talks about how he never took the jump he like there's a time he jumped at a swimming pool and he couldn't jump in oh and then it says then he took the leap and it's like yeah well we know what that means yeah i mean i i agree i hated harold but i found him one of the most compelling characters in the book yeah like just from the villainous side of things. There's it's just a he's a great example of how not to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there were so many times where I like I'd get to the end of a chapter and I'd just be like under my breath be like, God damn it, Harold. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> so the guy playing him is named Owen Teague, who I'm sure like he's a young actor, but he's been in a few things and you'd recognize him and uh it's just funny because in the in the book he's described as like quite portly. <laughs> Yeah, I guy. really didn't like and, the way he was. But he loses weight written. eventually, doesn't he? In the book? I guess so. Yeah. Maybe they'll make him bigger early. But Owen Teague is not a big guy; like he's the, very thin. So that part as like a as a more sociological mm. problem is like when you're writing evil, it's always conflated with like fatness and <laughs> right. obesity, and they're always yeah. like, "Oh, this person was so fat and ugly and evil," and it's just like, <laughs> what are right. you doing to? you know people who are bigger or are fatter (laughs) like they're not evil like not all of them are evil but like every time there's a villain you know it's never like a person who's got like a Mm. muscular sculpted body and like great personality who's evil i mean often i I agree i think in the book it makes a little bit of sense for harold's harold specifically because it feeds into his insecurities absolutely but 
I, think I always it, think I don't even think about that with him. He, they talk like he has a lot of acne, right? Right. That's yeah. true. They talk about yeah. his pimples yeah. and like uh, they, pimples, evil. <laughs> oh, they dwell on it so much. Like at the start, know, I'm like, about it way she's too okay, Stephen. Like I yeah. felt bad for we, him at the start. Yeah. I was we like, get it, Stephen King. It. Lay off yeah. the kid, yeah. friend. Yeah. Like, like, what are you doing? Really rough. No, but wait, wait, Billy. Let me show you what Harold will do. Yeah, yeah. He's like, no, no, no. I'm not the villain here. Well, you made it anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's getting pretty meta. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nothing. What's the matter with you? <laughs> it, like to that point, it could be interesting. Maybe he's just a really skinny guy in the show because the actor is pretty skinny. I so. think so. I mean, it's yeah. hard. Uh, a, a more common or a more, I don't know, parallel into another movie is the movie Holes with uh, mm, yeah, uh, right. What's his name? Shia LaBeouf when he was young. In the book, the Stanley Epkis character is written as very overweight. This right. kid. Right, and then right, he right. loses the weight digging the holes and he becomes so wiry. But they're like, I remember seeing a behind the scenes thing where they're like, it wouldn't have worked. No. <laughs> yeah. Shia LaBeouf was 12. He was like a, a wiry string bean of a kid and we weren't <laughs> yeah. on a shoot for that long. Right. So we just didn't have that. So yeah. uh, filming yeah, is going to be different. different. Yeah, it'll be different. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Did you we did it. Trash Can Man, though? The person who essentially kills all the evil, kills all the people. Yeah, you know what? I actually forgot about him. <laughs> Other than the ending when he lights the yeah. nuke, like I there are a lot of scenes with him lighting things on fire. I didn't remember him and... because I took like a like a two two month break right. from the beat, like the first eighty percent to the last twenty percent. So when he came back, I was like, I don't remember anything he did. <laughs> he was again. He was again the most. He was a lot of Deus Ex Machina. He was like, I just light things on fire. I do remember the one part though where he bug. he didn't like he didn't bat an eye at the one like drug user they had to kill in the zone because he didn't know him yeah i was mm. like wow that's cold it's like, yeah. I don't know you. <laughs> right like well i don't i don't know the person suffering so i'm not gonna care it's like oh, i don't like that attitude no. i do like that when he's when he finally gets to vegas and he's all it's like the burning away of donald his like name and he only the trash can man is left to the, to the point where when he's introduced to people he's like my name's trash can man and they're like oh okay, okay. Cool. sure right. trashy yeah. got it that's a <laughs> Very nice name, yeah, bro. Right, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, yeah. I guess he he just served to literally blow shit up <laughs> and and screw with the dark man's plans because yes. he he ends up inadvertently saving the day by blowing up all the fighter pilots because the people make fun of him. Yeah, and then he <laughs> wants to redeem himself, yeah, so he right. goes to get a nuke. Guess radiation poisoning. And oh, I totally related to him there. Yeah. Oh man, I really got to redeem myself. Where's the nearest nuclear weapon? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was weird. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was weird. He's a weird guy. His name is Trash Can Man. It's a weird guy. Just don't ask him about setting old lady, what's her name's pension check on fire. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that really pissed him off. Can't be doing that. So I loved this book. Overall, I thought it was a great read. And it's like for a a 1,500-page book, it only reads like an 1100. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's a brisk thousand pages. Yeah. It feels like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm 42 hours of listening. I'm not, not going to pretend like it's just an easy breezy read, but the prose isn't that hard. No. Right? And it's very listenable too. Mm-hmm. That's the other yeah. thing from my yeah. experience. Just like you could throw it on and go for a run and be mm-hmm. like, it's totally fine to and get a chapter. Enraptured in the story. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. When, when I first, when it first came up among the three of us of like, are we going to do it? What Stephen King are we going to do as a good crossover for nothing to fear? And I was like, Oh, there's so many good ones. And then I think it was like, I can't remember who suggested the stand, I mean, but I, you talked about me. it before. This is my favorite. Stephen right, King. right, right. And yeah. I was like, 
was like, oh, okay, whatever. Like, well, you know, 800 pages, I can do that. And then it shows up and I'm like, oh, fuck, I got to read this book. <laughs> we just finished Infinite Jest. Yeah. Now I'm jumping into this. To, to Like this year alone, I've read Atlas Shrugged, oh Infinite Jest, The Stand, and one other big book. Count of Monte Cristo. Count of Monte Cristo. I've made the most out of my 2020. <laughs> Holy shit, no kidding. And so like, I'm looking at The Stand, it's like, oh, fuck, the next one. But like, Really good. You can easy eat it read. Up. Easy mm-hmm. read. Yeah. Well, not maybe easy is the wrong word, but like, it's smooth. It goes down smooth. Yeah. Like you could read. This is the type of book you could read on an airplane. Yes. Yes. And like not. And probably buy it in an airport. Yeah. <laughs> you could probably. It's definitely an airport book. Like you wouldn't want to read Atlas Shrugged on an airplane. No. Because no. you'd be like, I'd oh. rather throw this. <laughs> As out. any listener of really true fiction knows, you don't want to read that book anywhere, no. anytime, ever. <laughs> So Ulysses next week, like no. <laughs> we actually we were talked talking about, about that, that. On Infinite Jets. How the only book I've ever read that's harder to read than Infinite Jets is Ulysses. Oh. <laughs> so looking forward to that one, eh, David. <laughs> we will have to English do English language point. book. Yeah, I mean, probably with like the show coming out, it'll be more present to buy in bookstores and stuff. Like they'll probably get another republishing. Of it'll it be or a something. new cover. True. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it'll have the the show cover on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So final thoughts. Um, yeah, I like this book. It was enjoyable. It was an easy, like you said, it was an easy read. There were some plot problems, but overall, it was fine. It was like you could just lose yourself to it and just have it happen to you and then mm-hmm. be done about it. But it stuck with me. I finished listening to it probably three weeks ago now, and I still remember lots of the right, plot right, right, yeah, and a whole character that you forgot about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm trash. <laughs> Maybe just your memory. Yeah. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> Look, my name is Billy. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess. Uh, I guess my my final thoughts are: this is the this is just a a fun read, mm. uh, but I think it's got a lot of deep themes, and you take from this book what you put into it. So yeah. if you like, think about and it. And serendipitous of our times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what yeah. this book is perfect for? This is perfect for like a summer in maine where you yes. can't go to the beach because right. there's no beaches yeah. there they're all yeah. rocks yeah. like you're just outside on a porch like yeah. that is what this book is for. i dare so you this to is cottage it. country this is cottage this is country so cottage country read yep yeah. yeah and you know i um i love that because like even though this is stephen king i don't consider this very scary like this no. isn't this is weirdly not a scary book no but it is something we've talked about on nothing to fear it has a lot of horrific elements to it yes so like we've we had one episode i can't remember where we delineated between scary and horror like what makes you fearful and what is horrific right. i think that was in texas chains i'm asking yeah and then and as I said, of yet unreleased yes oh it'll be released by the time this comes out yeah though, so week. it'll be okay fear lasts like Fear is survival. I'm in the fear right now, right, and yeah, I need yeah. to get out. And and ho- horror is like kind of almost Lovecraftian, where when I reflect on it, I can't make any sense of it, and it's still just terrible. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And I reflect on a lot of the things that happen in the stand, and I'm like, oh, that was so terrible. Especially those soldier scenes, right? Yeah. Well, that was like why after almost after the pandemic was over and everybody was dead it got easier to read because you're just like confronted yeah, with right, yeah. all these yeah. horrible things and people dying it's and people like oh now sick. we're in a story <laughs> and they're talking about yeah, like yeah. yeah they're talking about not like, a news bulletin yeah, <laughs> yeah just like kids dying and old people dying and everybody dying and then they're like and now it's an adventure and you're like all right <laughs> okay i like adventures here we go <laughs> yeah. well i want to say a really big thank you billy for joining us yeah, no on yeah, this episode guess. of Really True Fiction. Before we sign off, where can we find 
you slash nothing to fear one more time yeah you can nothing to fear podcast is what you, or nothing to fear is what you can search on any podcasting app our handles on instagram are at nothing to fear podcast on twitter it's nothing to fear p1 you can also follow me if you want billy by design is my handle there are underscores between the words and billy is spelled with an ie and yeah listen to nothing to fear it's a good it's a good podcast we have a lot of fun yeah i well, recommend it if and thanks for having it, me on if almost three hours of billy in my voice isn't enough for you <laughs> you can definitely find us shooting the shit more on it's uh, true if you need on, more billy <laughs> more billy and more luke oh yeah and, and uh, alex and alex you can find alex. us on another and uh so i have to make this joke so how nothing to fear functions is that we record an opening segment we watch the movie and then we record a second segment right after with our reactions. And so, Billy, you made the great joke of with the stand. Okay, we'll record the opening segment. Then we're we'll going to read, read the, the stand <laughs> and we'll come right back. That's good. That's I was like, good. That's so funny because that's such a perfect joke to make about <laughs> this fucking book. It's like fifteen hundred pages. All right, how? Uh, Seventeen hours later, you almost. Oh, I'm, I'm five hundred in. I can't. <laughs> yeah, I have a ways to go. go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I again just wanted to say a big thank you to David for being open to guests. Obviously, it's yeah, it's both of our decision, but it's like it's good to you know invite people on and thanks. You want to have a consensus? Yeah, of yeah. course. So. Any of again, all of you out there in listener land, if you want to get in touch with us at Really True Fiction, you can send us an email, reallytruefiction at gmail.com. If you're interested in being a guest, we have an, uh, another cousin working on how we can make this work remotely. Yes. Because yes. I am ah, technologically cool. inept, <laughs> and David is less technologically <laughs> inept, but, but still. We're just busy. Yeah. Well, I'm not busy. David's busy, <laughs> and I'm sucky at this. So. And so, one is busy, one is bad. B and B. So we're we're working on that. We just want more guests. So if you want to, or, or just like anything, anything you want to say. If you hated this, please let us know. We <laughs> yes. want to hear all about. We, we want to hear why too. Yeah, but you can subscribe to Really True Fiction on all podcast apps. Nothing to fear as well. We'll see you next time, Billy, I guess. Yeah. On yeah. The so anyway, thank I'd you. love f- to come back. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for coming. Uh, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. Uh, my name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And I'm Billy Schultz. And uh, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. May the force be with you. And also with you. <laughs> and also with you. <laughs>